Yeah, welcome officially to the Heat Logger JT. It's, uh, it's been a while. We were supposed to do this when I was in New York last. I know, and they just never ended up happening. Well, you're a busy uh, man. You're a busy man, mate. And nowadays, yeah. no one's busy. Yeah, I know. Everybody's just chilling. So, yeah. How are you? Um, timing. How are you going with it? I mean, New York's getting absolutely hammered. Uh. I'm all right. I mean, it's uh, it's just a pain in the ass because I can't train. I can't really do mm. anything that I would normally do. It's just like uh, it's boring. I mean, like you the make streets are quiet. You yeah. make your living off jujitsu, but like, like you, you teach jujitsu yeah. the same as me. You, you, like, you're in a position where your job's just been taken out from underneath you. Oh yeah. Uh, so it sucks because of that. Because now I can't teach, so I can't make money. Um, you know, it's. It's not a great situation, but I'm hoping that it just kind of like calmed down a little bit soon. It would be nice if it did. <laughs> yeah, how's it going? Are you guys like are the numbers starting to pull in over there, or? Uh, it's different every day. They say like uh, that it's getting better at certain points, and then at certain on certain days they're saying that the numbers jump. Uh, I know that a lot of the hospitals are like uh, kind of uh, what is it discharging a bunch of people. I know the hospital my uh, girlfriend works for, they said they discharged like 400 people this week or something like that that had coronavirus. Okay. So, I mean, so people are getting better. It's not like everyone's just dying, but there are a good amount of people dying from it, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but I'm, I'm just not sure about it. I just don't know. I just don't know whether our, our response is is right i mean I, I really don't know you know i don't know enough to make a decision either way i just know that it's fucking destroying a lot of us yeah no i just i i don't know i definitely don't watch any of the news so i don't know nah, the good news. Idea. only thing i watch yeah i don't watch that mm. i pretty much just listen to people that i know that work in hospitals and work as a doctor yep. or nurse and those are the people because I, I know enough people that do that for a living so it's like i'll ask them a question or something like that and i'll listen to what it is that they're saying based on what they're dealing with in their hospital and stuff like that. I listen based on what my girlfriend says because she calls uh, families uh, to like give them updates right. to get them in touch with nurses, to get them updates on their family members. Because you, once your family member goes into the hospital, you can't even see them uh, uh, after that. And they yeah. have no contact with them at all. So unless yeah. they have a cell phone, and most of these people are like really old people that don't know how to use a cell phone or don't have mm -hmm. a cell phone. So it's a it's a Bo the boomers. situation. Yeah, so it's like a shitty shitty situation, but yeah, man. Hopefully it just calms down soon. Yeah, well let's talk about some positive shit then. Let's talk about some jiu-jitsu. Yeah. People going absolutely, absolutely crazy inside their houses, but um have um have you like I don't know that I've caught too many podcasts that you done. Have you done many previously JC or was this something newer for you? Uh, I haven't done any podcasts in a while. I, okay. I did a I did a few like maybe a year or two ago. Yeah. Uh, but I haven't really done many in a bit. So. Well, this will be uh this will be the one that people get to know who you are because you know people that are listening here either are hardcore jujitsu players that obviously know everything you've done, and then some will just be catching on here. Hopefully, you know at the end of this, going to find out who you are. So that's what I wanted to kind of achieve out of this is is more people nice. knowing who you are because man, like. You're like, and I talk about this all the time, but you know, you and you and Jason Rao are these fucking unknown phenom fucking wizards that that you know make the rest of us feel like absolute spastics when we uh, <laughs> have a chance to train with you. And uh, I think more people need to know that. So um, oh, I kind I kind of wanted to um, I kind of wanted to like go to the 
go to the beginning of where it started like like what got you into jiu-jitsu what made you wander into because you were you went into henzo's at brooklyn was that where you actually started from scratch so where i started was actually at the main academy i did uh All right. beginners classes um i was at the main academy for like two three months i think um and i just started because like i was just like i think i was like 17 18 years old and i was just looking for a hobby to do um mm. uh, you know something to just like you know get in shape and like i always wanted to like learn some kind of combat sports and like i always enjoyed mma so i was like you know let me go give jujitsu a try because when i first walked in i thought i was going to be able to like i thought jujitsu like i thought i went to like henzo's i would be throwing on mma gloves and shit like that and then they gave me like a fucking kimono a gear. Yeah, yeah they gave me a kimono and said you gotta do this and then i was like all right, right i guess yeah. i'll do this yeah. um but in the beginning i didn't really love jujitsu that much yeah uh, but it's just something about it from the first class that i took it just like clicked like i was just like i just felt like I felt like I could do this. Like I'm pretty good. At, or like I, I don't know why, but I felt like I was pretty good considering mm-hmm. when I walked into a beginner's class. Um, and I was like, all right, I can do this. I, you know, I was a cocky young kid. I was like, fucking king of know, the white belts. Yeah, king of the white belts. Yeah. Uh, right away, I felt like so. I was like, all right, I can do this <laughs> shit. Uh, and then you know, I started training uh, at Henzo Brooklyn. Like I did my first tournament as a white belt after training like a month or something like that, and I got choked out in like fucking like a minute and a half. I think I was like, oh wow, I'm not that good as I thought. Um, and then I went started training at Henzo Brooklyn because it opened up closer to my house, and that's where I really got to see like how much I suck. Uh, <laughs> and it made me want to train more because at Henzo Brooklyn I got to train in a mixed class, so I was a white belt training yep. with purple color belts blue, yeah brown and black belts yeah so mm-hmm. that's kind of i think if i didn't switch change to henzo brooklyn i might have never continued training after that but yeah. uh, that's pretty much yeah so i pretty much just got started looking for something to do i had just started like i just finally finished uh i was finishing up high school like i, I dropped out for like the two and a half years or something like that and i had went back into like a a program that helps like rush you through your high school diploma kind of like an equivalency degree we have that over here where it's like they'll put you in like a school we don't have like, school over here we just all go straight out on the streets after we're born yeah it's that's pretty rough over here. guys yeah it's just like do whatever you want over in Australia. Yeah, we just gotta survive you're just gonna have a pet kangaroo and you're good yeah you just fight kangaroos and shit and then yeah that's yeah. just how it works yeah so i was just like looking for a hobby while i was doing that just because like it's like school was always something that i like hated so it's like once i got into like trying to find a job and shit like that like i couldn't even get a job working at whole foods putting like fruit on the shelves and i was like all right i should probably go back to some kind of schooling or do something and then uh because i was going to go to the military as well so like there's a lot of things going on so i just like was looking for like an outlet to just kind of like go like have something to do that wasn't the stuff that was stressing me the hell out. So it's like, that's just how I got started in it. And always having an interest in it kind of helped me push myself to just like stick with it. So, but was it, was it, were you watching the UFC or something? Like a lot of us, that's how we kind of saw, yeah. saw fighting and jujitsu and that's what attracted us to. Is that what you, you know, you, you knew of the UFC and thought, I want to, you know, do that sort of stuff? Yeah. I mean, uh, the first time I ever saw any kind of MMA was watching the uh, Ultimate Fighter. Uh, and then after that, 
it just kind of like I was always like a fan on and off. But when I really started to get into MMA, it's always a funny story. I tell people I used to watch a lot of Kimbo Slice street fight videos. Kimbo. And then, and yeah, and then I, yes. And yeah. I would watch their, so I would, what I would do is I would watch their street fight videos. I would sit up all night working out, watching street fight videos and like eating zebra cakes and stuff like that. And I would always like watch it and like be like, oh, this is pretty cool. And then I'd see that like Kimbo fight MMA and stuff like that. And it's like, I don't know. I just always had a like a interest in some kind of combat sports. I watched yeah. a little bit of boxing and stuff like that. Like when I was a kid, I was always into the Rocky movies. So it was just like, I guess it was just meant to be that. Like I always wanted to do like some kind of boxing. Like I did a little bit of karate when I was a kid and stuff like that. Uh, I played tons of other sports, but like always the combat sports were the things that interested me the most. And I just like kind of fell into jujitsu kind of by accident. No basketball for you, JC. I played basketball. I was actually pretty good at basketball. Okay. Yeah. How how yeah, rude no, of I, me to assume that you wouldn't be, though, actually. Even though I'm 4'11", I was actually pretty, <laughs> I was actually pretty, I was pretty good in, like, junior high school and because stuff like that I used to play. You're, um, for those that are sitting here and, and might not know you, they might not know how tall you are sitting here in your car, JC, yeah. but what I put you at, like, 5'4", five, five, what is it? What are you, 5'7"? Five, five, you're, being, you're being very generous I'm, and I'm very kind. Of, I'm being kind, aren't I? <laughs> What's the official well, on stats? My, on my license, it says 5'3". When people meet me, it's because I have I usually have my sneakers on. I'm 5'4". Yeah. No, so I'm actually like 5'2 and a quarter or some shit. So. Now, you would, you, would look, you would look at you and assume, oh, this, you know, smaller guy, if you didn't know anything. I'm telling you, like, I don't see many people, and I'm not giving away secrets from the training room, but I don't see many people train with Jason Rao and come out of it looking remotely good. Like everyone just gets fucking train wrecked by that guy. And um, but you two, he 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 told me you're he, the hardest person for him to submit. You know, other than maybe Gordon Ryan. Like he just said, I cannot. Like the guy's just a nightmare. Like I, I trained with you, I can't get hold of anything. Like so, it's funny how I think that you know that stature that you would sometimes think in a combat sport would be a negative clearly is a positive for you because. Man, guys just can't get hold of you, and you're just like a little fucking tornado turning inside out. Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely, I I learned to use my uh, my body type a little bit, I guess, mm. uh, in training, and it kind of I kind of like build my game around that, um, and uh, it, it it helps a little bit, you know, it helps a good amount to like understand how to use your body to uh, you know, play play a game, um. And Jason is very, very good. People don't really know that very much. Uh, uh, we'll talk. Jason, I'd like to talk about yeah. him later. He's, he's <laughs> the dragon. Just like he says, like he's um his hardest role. He's my hardest role. Every time I roll with yeah. him, it's like I ha- I use my A game, and most of the time I am on the defensive. So even though he says like I'm on the defensive most of the time, trying to like get an offense going, like he's he's really good. It's very impressive watching you type you two guys go. But um, so you know, first first place you go to is Henzo's, which is basically the you know f- for most people it's the best academy in the world for submission grappling. So you just wandered in. Did you realize what you were walking into at that stage, or did you just think, oh, Henzo's a fighter. I want to. I like fighting. I'll just go there. Like, because you're from Brooklyn, right? So that meant you would yeah. have to travel into the city. For those listening, um. The main academy is in Manhattan, which is which would mean for JC to be a train ride into the into the city, right into Penn Station. Yeah. Mm. So you know, um, what, what was the go there? How'd you you know? There's plenty of other academies around. 
I mean, I looked at a few other uh, places. Um, the only reason I ended up going to Henzo's first is because I knew somebody, one of my uncle's friends, uh, was the person who convinced me to go there when I was looking for places to go. Like, he convinced me to, to go there because he had been training there. That's kind of how I ended up there. Um, I didn't really know too much about, like, people in the jiu-jitsu world. So, mm. I'm beyond, I, didn't, I didn't really know who Henzo was. So it wasn't like I watched a ton okay. of his fights and like I, I wasn't really into MMA. Like I didn't know what pride was. I didn't okay. know, you know, I didn't you know. Just, you just came by. Yeah. I just just throwing, like, yeah, throwing Kimo, knuckles. Yeah. UFC. Like I, I knew like Chuck Liddell, Tito Ortiz. Like yeah. I knew all the, that era of people. Yeah. So I didn't really know like the Henzos or I didn't mm-hmm. really know like all I knew was like Boyce Bracey and Ken Shamrock, like that kind of stuff like that's about as far as i knew and i just kind of stumbled into the gym man uh, based on just somebody else you know saying hey you should go there i know you want to train just go there Um, that's phenomenal like that's really impressive to to stumble across you know potentially one of the best academies in the world like that's a that's a good effort because the 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 way they um you know the way they the way they teach. There, even the fundamentals classes, you're going you're going to get good jujitsu from the get go. You're not going to get taught yeah. some rubbish that you got to relearn later. So, so you started doing all those classes with um, uh, was it there? Because the Brazilians run like a lot of those beginner classes and the gi stuff, yeah. like, like Greg or Gracie and those guys. Were they, were they the sessions that you were doing in the um in the second room? Yeah. So I mean, uh, I think my first instructor in the beginners class was Hoffa and Sapo. Those were the people that I took their classes the most um when i was first starting out uh but yeah no i mean it was good instruction and especially since i didn't freaking i didn't know anything so all i knew was basically what i saw on tv and i just went into the gym and i would just reenact stuff i saw on tv so i mean but i, I learned a lot in those beginner classes a lot of like fundamental jujitsu and stuff like that like i used to like hate the warm-ups and stuff like that and like that would be the thing that i would like complain about and yeah and, doing the same stuff over and over again, like the shrimps and the hip escapes. But like, those are things that you actually need to, in the beginning, those things are beneficial. You need to learn how to shrimp. You need to learn how to fucking do a hip escape and, you know, basic stuff. Um, But I learned a lot of like fundamental ideas and stuff like that in beginner's class. I still remember a lot of the like little things that I learned uh, within the two or three months that I took beginner's classes. But the second I could get out of a beginner's class, I did. Yeah, it sounds like you were. I mean, you you've had a very fast progression in your whole jiu-jitsu career, really. Um, yeah, maybe you were beyond that. The rest of us spastics that are a bit slow, we need to stay in that beginner class a little longer. But oh, I was I was super spastic. I remember I would go to class and I'd I would leave class with like black eyes and like scrapes <laughs> all over my face. I was a super spaz. I just didn't know any better. I didn't know I was being a spaz. I thought I was just training hard. But I was being a spaz, trust me. I, I remember think... one time I freaking went head to head with one dude and like we both went from bottom position and tried to like tackle each other. And I rammed my fucking head so hard into his head, but his head was just harder than my head. Oh, and I was just like, wow. I still remember that because it was freaking hurt me. Stitches? Good. No, no, no stitches. Luckily I've never knocked on wood gotten any stitches and I've slam my head into people's knees and elbows and stuff like that pretty hard i've gotten some pretty bad black eyes in the past never any stitches so luckily hey give, give me one sec jc just yeah, give me one no sec problem. sorry
Sorry, guys, that's super unprofessional, but I've got a um, I've got a newborn baby, he's three weeks old, and I could just hear him in the background. I thought the wife was bringing him out. So, sorry, man, that's uh, we're back, we're back, we're good. Yeah, that's cool. This is the um, this is the problems with baby life. We got we got two little ones yeah. and then the littlest one, so it's a nightmare. Sorry. So um, yeah, no, yeah. Cool. So, so we've all been that spaz, that spaz mode. But I mean, you you've had a, I feel like you've had a quick progression. How many years to black belt was it? I think it was like six. Yeah, I mean that's. That's impressive. Like a lot of guys that are really good, that tends to be their progression is around that six-year mark. But that's a good indicator yeah. that someone's, um, you know, you're obviously going to be, you're going to be, uh, you're not going to talk yourself up. But man, like six years, impressive. I mean, that's a that's a fairly quick period to to black belt, especially under who you're training with. Yeah, I mean, it was. It, luckily, I was exposed to like a lot of like high-level grapplers early on, mm. um, and that helped a lot. Uh, Sometimes I wish I would have took a little bit longer to get a black belt. Okay. Um, you know, just because everybody kind of feels that way once you get a black belt. I like think I so. have a, I have another friend who's a black belt that says he's a purple belt. He wishes he was still a purple belt. Um, mm. you know, sometimes I feel like I wish I would have been in like certain belts for a little bit longer. Uh, but you know, it, it's it, it. You know, I feel like I have a good amount of knowledge, and when I got my black belt, I felt like I had a good amount of knowledge. I just felt like I. I wish I would have been at certain belt ranks for a little bit longer of a period of time because I was like a white belt and a blue belt for a while, and then I went from purple to brown pretty quickly, mm. and then from brown to black within like a year. Uh, but you know, sometimes I wish I would have took a little bit longer. But it's well, cool. There's, there's guys who get their belts, um, you know, there's guys who get their belts just with being reasonable, but through time, you know, they put in that ten year mark and they whatever, yeah. but then there's guys like you who are just they're so good in competition that having you at the lower belt level, you just don't get the matches you need to get. Guys won't take matches with a, a purple belt who's a fucking absolute nightmare. You, like sometimes you've you've got to be put to that level before you can get those matches. I mean, was that something you were having trouble with on the scene? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you still big, have trouble with that. Yeah, but yeah. a big thing, yeah, a big thing with um with when I got my brown belt was that I wanted to do all these invitational tournaments for money and instead of waiting like a full year because like i got my brown from purple within like six months i think it was Mm -hmm. um and a big reasoning for actually getting my brown a little bit earlier than they wanted to give me my brown belt was specifically to get matches and to get on like uh i got super fights once i got my brown belt i was able to get into the first finishers tournament i did once i got my brown belt so definitely having a brown belt at the time when I, when all these things were first happening, like super fights and, and the invitational tournaments for money, like having a brown or a black belt made it a lot easier. It's not like how it is now where, like, you could be a blue belt jumping into these things and, like, they'll take you if you're a blue belt that has a few, like, good Naga expert divisions or even Chief if you scouts, don't. Yeah. You just, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, it's a little different now. But when I was, when these kind of invitational tournaments first opened up, a lot of the promoters wanted brown and black belts. They didn't really want blue, purple, you know, they didn't want lower belts. So, I mean, it made it easier to get matches and stuff like that at brown belt. And then it always came down to people would always say, oh, are you sure he should have got it? And people would complain to them, my coach who gave me a brown belt. And then, and then it was like up to me to like, kind of like prove Show that more. I deserve the brown belt. Yeah, yeah go win the matches and stuff like that. So, and that, I feel like, helped me get better, too, because it was always like, well, I, now I got the belt, so now I have to prove that I deserve the belt. So it's like now I got to work harder and not just win matches, but I actually got to learn 
jujitsu, I actually got to know what the fuck I'm talking yeah. about. Did you that know? put so, more pressure on you? Uh, yeah, sometimes I felt like it put more pressure on me, but it was good because it definitely, like I said, it helped me uh, improve faster. It helped me want to actually learn uh, jiu-jitsu from like a standpoint of actually understanding it for myself and not just um, being good, waiting for like, yeah, not just being like good because I mean, you've seen like sometimes people like it just jujitsu can click and they could just be yeah. better than other people yeah. uh physicality whatever it is yeah maybe um, they're athletic or like yeah. athleticism whatever it is natural abilities uh and some certain things can just click for them uh for me it was like once i got my brown is when i started to like realize all right now i have to like i wanted to be able to teach somebody else jujitsu not yeah. just be able to perform moves that are taught to me so it was kind of like that was like the time when i was like trying to learn how to be uh, a teacher and learn how to teach myself and like truly understand like concepts and ideas. And like, that was when I felt like I first started to actually learn jujitsu, not just learn moves and understand yeah. it, you know? Yep. So. To- like totally understand, totally appreciate that, especially from a, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a coach even before I'm a competitor, especially nowadays. And I had the same realization probably, at brown black belt as well when i started teaching more and you start to you can't just get by on here's a set of moves that work for me rolling in the gym it's like now i've got to yeah. be able to ha- understand the whole width of you know i might get someone who this move doesn't work for i've got to give them an option it's not fair to just you know try and pigeonhole everyone into what suits me so um i think that's a realization that like smart level-headed guys have where they go okay if i want to be able to do this seriously and be able to help other people i've, I've got to understand it at a deeper level um, you, I mean, you're surrounded by so many fucking good guys, especially in that early stage of your, um, you know, your, and, and still, obviously yeah. still. So just like I've had to come to New York and try and like drag that information out and try to understand it. Um, like yeah. it just, it, it, it's phenomenal. And, and like listening to you explain stuff to me, I, I quizzed you last time I was in there on a couple of back stuff and it was like, it was like this guy understands jujitsu, you know, I could just, oh, I could, I could see it and I could, I could, I could feel it and I could. I could hear it and I could go, this, there's a difference. He's not just, he's not just repeating moves. You know, I could see how you, you know, how you think about things. And there was a day there where, where you and, and Jay Rao were bouncing ideas off each other. And you're kind of like, look, I think this, and you were kind of like, you were engineering stuff. You weren't just, you weren't just going, here's a move I've been shown. You were actually going through going, no, this is what I feel. This should be the position. This arm needs to be here. And, and that just, I think that's phenomenal. So like, you know, you're a, you're not just a good, I'm not just trying to blow smoke up your ass, but you're not just a good competitor. You're actually a really, you know, good jiu-jitsu player and coach. And, I, you know, I'm excited to see who you oh, spawn, you. <laughs> you know, who you spawn off as you as you teach and coach more. That'll be interesting to see, you know, that's oh, always you. a good indicator, isn't it? Like how how good are the guys that a guy can create, not just him, you know, not just him as an individual. Yeah. I mean, that's like something that I'm trying to, that actually, even though I'm still a competitor first, it's mm-hmm. because now it's at a certain point where a lot of the time I'm training with people that I'm teaching. It's like now it's at a certain point where I'm trying to do like with what Eddie did with me is that he trained me to be a good training partner for him to give him hard training. Mm-hmm. And that pretty much also helped me get better was the fact that I had somebody like Eddie that Eddie Cummings that was so good at jujitsu and understood it so well that I learned jujitsu through him. And a lot of the reason why he taught me, wasn't because I was his student, like I wasn't paying him. It was more that he needed a training partner his size that he can get good to get like really good training. And that's really what I'm trying, like 
in my classes, when I teach like classes, I'm trying to get guys, I'm trying to figure out how I can help guys improve at a fast rate, similar to how like what Eddie did with me. Like I'm trying to figure out how to do that mm-hmm. so that I can have more training partners. Like I have a lot of training partners now and I have a lot of high level guys to train with and I can always travel and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But when I like in my, cause I do train with the people that I teach, I want to have you know, a room full of people that like, if somebody comes to visit and trains in one of my classes, yeah. yeah, I want people to be like, okay, everybody in the room's actually really good. When I train, I want my guys that I'm training with and I'm teaching to like, have to put, like, I want to have to like, you know, maybe every now and again, they put me in a bad spot. Mm-hmm. Like I want to be able to get like good, hard training, even with the people that I teach. And that also helps me understand what I'm doing better. If like, if I teach somebody a move, I always watch, um, when I teach, um, I for I try to tell people to like train using the things that I go over. Like if I go over something in class, try and actually use it. Um, so I'll do a lot of situational training where if we're working from like a half guard pass, like I'll make guys start around starting in half guard smash position. So it like forces guys to use the move. And like I see, I try to watch and see if like what I showed while they're trying to use it, are they having success with it and stuff like that. I try to see if if maybe if they're not having success, what are they doing wrong? Maybe there's something I'm doing wrong. Every time mm-hmm. I teach, I always think that maybe if a move's not working for somebody, maybe I'm teaching it wrong. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I need to go back and revise it. And that's kind of like something I do when I teach. And it's similar. I take the same approach to when I'm training. Is like I try movements. I'm always trying different things to like improve in different areas. I feel like if at a certain point I just only get set into one set of moves that's where i kind of i feel like that's where i I was always taught like that's where you start to not improve is when you're only focusing on just one thing um so i just i try to take the same approach to my own training when i'm teaching as i do when i'm teaching myself jujitsu because every day when i'm watching tape and i'm training I'm, i'm trying to teach myself new ideas and new things the same as when i'm teaching people my students I'm trying to always teach them new ideas and new things. And I'm always trying to figure out ways to make myself get better as well as trying to figure out ways to make them get better. And it's easier for me to try those ideas on ways to make them get better on them. And then I could always take it and bring it to myself as well and vice versa and stuff like that. That's the approach that I'm like now that I have students that I'm, I'm using and it's, it's helping, you know, man, that's your, your wise beyond your years. How old are you now? JC is it 26? Uh, 25. I'm gonna be 26. Okay, so you're 25, man. Like that's yeah. that's a very, the way you just explained to me, you know, is, is very much how how I think about my coaching and training. It's also how like a lot of the better coaches think, and you're already onto that well and truly at 25. I mean, that's oh, thank you. that's 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 great, but that's probably also a byproduct of who you've had bring you through. Like yeah. you said, guys that have taught you. Um, obviously, anyone who knows. Um, jiu-jitsu coming out of new york talks about john danaher did you spend a lot yeah. of time with john because i mean his his training is very much like that there's positional training he's he's looking how he can make guys good on a short time span did you spend yeah. a lot of time with john uh i did uh when i was uh blue belt i started training in the city and uh, originally i was only training once a week in the city uh under john and i was training two days a week in a comp training session uh with eddie um, and, uh, after training in John's classes and then they started doing like the, uh, the afternoon training in the gi, they were doing the no gi training that now it's yep. like a really big thing. But in the That's beginning the it was, it was fairly small. Um, 
So just to confirm with people, like the the the, at Henzo's, there's the Monday, Wednesday, Friday are kind of like the big days, and there's always the AM session, which is the early morning session. Everyone piles in, and then most of the good guys kind of hang around during the day, have a nap, and then twelve thirty, one o'clock, the afternoon session starts, which used to be a gi class and still has gi players in it, but now he's kind of split down the middle and and they go half and half, but. In the in the beginning, it was just only a couple of the the core like Def Squad guys like Eddie and, and Gary and that that kind of were doing their no gi and the rest was just yeah. a gi. Is that correct? Is that how that kind of came about? Yeah, um, it kind of like the first time that I was invited, I went and it was just it was just Eddie and Gary and that yep. was it. Mm-hmm. And then maybe one or two other people that like they kind of invited one person themselves. So it was like Gary had. I forgot who it was that he brought with him as a training partner, basically, to drill moves on. And then Eddie had one person that he brought to drill moves on. I think maybe one or two other people were there. I'm not sure. And it just, you know, I was training with Eddie one morning, and then he's like, hey, you want to stick around and just train in John's class? I was like, you think John's going to let me? He said, I guess we'll find out. Because, like, you never know if he's, you know. You don't, um, Yeah, and so, like, I I trained the one time, and then – and then after that, like, I, I didn't know if I was going to be able to keep coming back. It was just kind of like a thing that he was like, oh, you could train today, but I don't know about after this. And then uh, I started training there. Like, Gary actually grabbed me in the locker room. and He was like, so I have a match with Meow coming up, and you're small, and you move around. Mm. You know, you play a similar Meow-ish. you know, style. And, yeah, you play like a Meowish kind of, and you're flexible and stuff like that. So you uh, – you want to keep coming in. I'm sure uh, Gary Tone has grabbed plenty of men in the, in the change room too. Uh, I'm I'm quite sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So that's, that's basically how I got like, uh, started to show up more consistently was once like they asked me, you know, to come in more consistently. And it's like, for some, it it was like at that point I took grappling serious. Yeah. I wanted to do grappling. So I was like, all right, cool. That's my opportunity to like, get like good training in with like, high level guys and stuff like that, you know, so I made sure to take that opportunity to show up every day after that. And that's kind of how like I got started in there. Did you realize what had been presented to you? Because like, I'm looking at this in my mind right now going, fuck, that was, that was a fairly embryonic stage for the deaf squad still, yeah. but that was, you were right, right in the middle of it. I mean, you're there with Eddie, Gary, Danaher in a small group where he would have been giving you a lot of pretty much direct um, information and training. I mean, that's a, yeah. that's a very, precious um commodity right there yeah uh i didn't really realize it 100 percent. yeah um what was like what was going on because like i said mm-hmm. i was fairly i was fairly like uh i guess green to like what the possibilities of like a professional grappling career was so i didn't really know what it was that you you know can do in terms of like if well it still wasn't a huge thing then was it it wasn't no what it year wasn't was a this? big thing this would have been what like 16 maybe, 15 what was it maybe 14 15 maybe yeah i, I mean maybe yeah, around I mean, that time it really it wasn't, it wasn't very, a clear trajectory was there yeah no because yeah. it was just at 14 i was a blue belt so yeah it really wasn't like uh it was like that was around the time that the first meta that meta morris happened with like eddie bravo and yep. that was around the time that gary became big because just did uh, the 2013 ADCC and and then he did the EBI the 170 where he beat Nathan Orchard and stuff like that. So that's when like that's how I knew who Gary was was mm. that's around the same time that I started to watch competitive grappling seriously. 
um, because before that, I never really paid attention to it. I didn't even know professional grappling was a thing. I didn't well, know it that. Barely was, JC. It barely was, JC. It barely was, man. I mean, before that, there yeah. just wasn't. There just wasn't shows. There just was no. There was yeah. no money. There was nothing. It was just all the rubbish tournaments, federation tournaments, you know. Yeah. So I, I had no idea, like I said, what professional grappling could even be, because it was basically just. It was in the like uh, the growing stages. So that's why I always think about it. I'm always like. You know, maybe like fucking 10 years from now, I'll be looking back at like, I was like in the start of a sport kind of like how like, like Hoist Gracie and those guys were in the start of like the UFC. Like I'll, uh, like I kind of look at it as like when I'm older or an old man, if I make it that long, Mm -hmm. I'll look back and be like, hopefully this sport would have grown at that point, would, will grow to that at that point to the level of like a UFC or something like that, a major sport beyond ESPN. Mm -hmm. And I'll be able to, I'm hoping that I'll be able to look back at it and be like, wow, I was, I was involved before it was even a thing. Like I was there before it was like a serious, like major sport. So, I mean, but like, yeah, when I got started, it was not a, not a thing really to be a professional grappler, a full-time grappler train Mm -hmm. multiple, like it was just starting out. Like even Eddie only trained like once a day at that point. Yeah. So it wasn't really like a big thing to like train full time and only do jiu-jitsu. Most people that trained full time were MMA fighters. They weren't mm-hmm. grapplers. Well, it was the only thing know? where there was any money. See, now submission grappling is a, is a real thing. And that's, you know, I find myself not always referring to it as, as BJJ or jiu-jitsu. I find myself calling it what we're doing more submission grappling it's it's a yeah it's a would you agree that it's a different thing your average jiu-jitsu school that's teaching kimono based uh, gi jiu-jitsu this is a different when you walk into hanzo's there and you experience the that type of grappling it's not fair to call that just the same thing that the gi started like that's submission grappling it's a different thing is that fair to say yeah no 100 percent. i always consider myself a submission grappler not a, a bj brazilian jiu-jitsu competitor mm. or you know, because I don't really do too much like Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Like, if mm. I compete, it's either like I don't do many Brazilian jiu-jitsu tournaments. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't do federation tournaments. Most of the time, if I compete, it's either sub only or it's ADCC rule because it's more geared around submission grappling. How I was always explained to it by like when Eddie used to say like he used to like get like he used to be like I'm not a jiu-jitsu guy. I'm a submission grappler. Yeah, like that's how he would always explain it to people. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm not a jujitsu guy; I'm a submission grappler, and that's kind of like the approach that I've always taken, and that's how I always looked at like what I do is submission grappling. So I feel like I, there was like Brazilian jujitsu, and it was, you know, that's the the federation sport, and that's like the gi. And then I feel like no gi has went from being no gi. I feel like the word no gi maybe we should eliminate it. I, I don't. I kind of don't like the word no gi for training outside of the gi. I like. I'd rather the word submission grappling. I would rather yeah, I that like when you take the, the gi off, it's considered submission grappling rather than no mm-hmm. gi jujitsu. Because mm-hmm. it's a different thing, you know? In my opinion. That's just no, how I no look at it. No gi jujitsu. No, man. You're preaching to the choir here. The, the, no gi jujitsu is exactly that. You take the kimono off and you still do effectively the rubbish federation rules where it's it's yeah. it's not it's kind of halfway jujitsu. You're not allowed to do so many different things. It really forces a particular style of grappling. Like the reason yeah. I describe what I do, what you guys do is submission grappling is because it's basically take out striking 
and the rest of it, that's what's left is what we're trying to do. Whatever method, whether it's reaping, whether it's a particular submission, you know, basically it's all, you know, other than bending each other's fingers back, like everything's pretty much good. And that's how I feel it should be. That's the the yeah. idea is to be a pure, uh, to be a pure, as pure as we can, you know, we don't want to be beating each other's head in every, every night or else we may as well do mixed martial arts. But I feel like we should be trying to get to a point where we're not hamstringing our martial art by adding all these funny little rules. For instance, I can't put my leg across the guy's leg because that's yeah. someone like, you know what I'm saying? So submission grappling, totally. No gi is an outdated terminology. Yeah, no, 100%. I feel like submission grappling is the, I feel like when people promote their tournaments, I feel like more people should be promoting it as submission grappling. Even when there's points, once you take the gi off, I think they should be saying it's submission grappling. Mm-hmm. I feel like also submission grappling just sounds so much cooler than no gi cool, jiu-jitsu. No yeah, it's so much cooler than no gi jiu-jitsu. I feel like it's it's kind of like, you know, it's like UFC used to be called no rules fighting, mm. and now it's called mixed martial arts. It's like no rules fighting sounds like fucking cockfights in like a basement somewhere in some random country, but like MMA mixed martial arts, MMA, it yeah. just sounds better, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I do feel like for the sport to grow, I do feel like it needs to be rebranded kind of in some ways. And in some ways it has, but uh, I definitely feel like the word submission grappling for training outside of the gi should be used more often. I feel like the word no gi at a certain point does need to be eliminated, I think, in my opinion. That's just how I've always felt about it. No, I'm, I'm agreeing with you there, mate. Um, so, so continuing along your timeline, I mean, so far, yeah. it's the, the access to information that, that you've managed to get yourself in the middle of is pretty fucking impressive. Like, for anyone listening who doesn't know who Gary Tonin or John Danaher or um, Eddie Cummings is, are probably on the wrong podcast anyway. But... Um, you know, we, everyone's heard people talk about John Danaher, but Eddie Cummings, I never, unfortunately, I never got to meet Eddie. I never got to train with Eddie, but from all accounts, he's a mad scientist as well. He's, yeah. he's kind of like nearly just a younger variation of, of, of John Danaher. I mean, you, you probably know Eddie about as well as anyone knows um, Eddie. What's, tell us a bit about that guy. I mean, it's a bit of an opening um, question. He's just a crazy person. Mm. Uh, there's in a good way? Story. Yeah, in a good way. In a bad way, too. <laughs> uh, but uh, there's always one story I tell about him uh, to people. Because people always ask, like, what did you learn from Eddie? What did you learn from John? And it's kind of like, mm. from John, I always learned how to teach. Because I used to sit in on John's, John's privates and stuff like that. So from John, I always learned how to teach people. Mm-hmm. So I think that like that's the biggest thing that I picked up from John was how to give information to other people. And from Eddie is where, because I wasn't involved in the creative process of John's jiu-jitsu at all. Um, I was only there when he was teaching, so that's all I can learn. I, I took what I could take, which was how he approached teaching and what it, how it is that he got information to people. Um, and with Eddie, is like I got to learn the behind-the-scenes stuff more. I got to learn how to come up with stuff. I got mm-hmm. to learn how to break things down. And the story I always tell people is, um, so at one point, Eddie would, uh, before the ADCC in 2015, Eddie would train after the afternoon training, we would go and train, uh, for a few hours, uh, upstairs on the third floor. Mm -hmm. And basically it was just during that time period in training, he would do maybe some positional training, get some extra rounds in, get some repping in. And I just remember one day 
he just started working a position where he would just grab an outside scoop grip on the leg. And we spent, I think it was, it, it felt like two to three hours. It might've been less than that, but it was two to three hours. I think of just looking at all the different possibilities of how to do an outside scoop grip and what we could do with it, how we could use it to pass, how we can use it to attack the legs. Then it was, what do we need to do if somebody takes the outside scoop grip on us? And from there, I kind of got to like get a little bit of insight in how his brain works. It's like he's going to have an answer for every possible thing that you can do with any possible grip. And that's why he's always 10 steps ahead of everybody. And that's why nobody can really get like an offense going on him is because he's always processing in his brain when he watches jiu-jitsu or when he's working on a position, he's looking at all the possibilities, whether it be offensively or defensively. And that's like the biggest thing that I picked up from him was how to break things down to be able to teach myself jujitsu, how to break things down to make myself better at jujitsu. Um, so like I, I was lucky enough that I got to learn from two people that were super intelligent and super crazy in their own ways, mm. but I got to learn two different aspects of jujitsu where Eddie wasn't always great at teaching. I felt like because he would ramble on and stuff like that because he's like, uh, I guess that he's a weirdo. Mm. Um, and so when he would teach, he would ramble. And when he would ramble, he would lose people. Yep. Um, the way that I always learned from Eddie was I always learned by, I would listen to him, but I would also watch him. So I would pay attention to more what I was seeing rather mm -hmm. than what I was hearing. And with John, it was the opposite. I would pay more attention to his words. Yeah, that's that's very good, actually. He has a way that's with words good. that help yep. you actually pick up what he's doing. So if he's you very eloquent you with his words, watch, yeah. Yeah. If you just watch, you might not pick it up. But mm -hmm. if you listen and really pay attention to mm -hmm. what he's saying and watch what he's doing, it makes it a lot easier. Where with Eddie, I always felt like stop listening to him talk because he's going to after like two minutes or a minute, he's going to start rambling on about six different things. But he's going to keep showing the same move. So he's going to show the move as long as you're watching the move and paying attention to the details, you'll pick it up. So that's basically I always tell people I learned from Eddie how to create jujitsu and I learned from John how to teach it and organize it to be able to have it all stored in my brain kind of man you're you know, a so fucking I, smart guy JC you, you try to say you didn't you. didn't finish it, yeah. high school and all this sort of bullshit but is, is this just your calling because listen to you talk about this I mean this because uh, this is obviously my complete life now this is what I obsess about and it's it's fantastic hearing you explain this stuff because that's you know along the lines of how I think and how I how deep into this this hole I've been going but that's where your brain's at already and your brain was there early on in the piece like is this just something that fucking clicks for you or, or is this how you think about everything or is this just you were made for this i i think i don't know if i was made for it or anything like that it's just like my brain i've kind of like my whole life i've always looked at things like i've always was trying to find something that just clicked like it was just always like that's why it was like i couldn't deal with school because it just couldn't click it mm. just didn't click mm -hmm. you know so it's just like if it, something didn't click with me i just didn't want to do it you know, it's just like, that's always how my brain worked. It was like, if it didn't click, I didn't want to do it. I played football. I was okay at it, but it didn't click. It never, like, I never played football where I was, like, sitting at home studying tape like I do jiu-jitsu. I never, mm -hmm. like, approached it as I want to be the best in the world kind of at playing football or whatever it is. Like, jiu-jitsu, for some reason, the second I started doing it, I just remember, for some reason, it just clicked with me. It was just like, this is something that I want to do. This is something that I feel like I can get good at. This is something that I feel like I can devote 
every second of my day to trying to get better at and I'll never get bored with it. Yeah. And it's just like, that's just jujitsu just kind of like, it was the one thing and it was the, that's why like, I always tell people like jujitsu is the one thing that always clicked with me. And I tried tons of other things. Like is jujitsu is the one thing that I ever stuck with in my life. Like I've done tons of different sports. I've done tons of different things. Like I did bodybuilding for a little bit where I was lifting weights like crazy. And it's like, after a while, I just got tired of it. Like jujitsu is the one thing, like some days I hate it just because of all the nonsense that's involved in being a competitive jujitsu player yep. and thing. And a competitive is that more rapper. the politics you're talking about? Yeah. More of the politics yep. where it's like some days it makes me hate it. It makes me want to mm-hmm. walk away from it. Some days please I think don't, like, oh, please just, don't do that. Yeah. Don't do that, mate. We'll, we'll miss <laughs> you. Don't do that. I'm just like, I'm just like, you know, I just don't want to do it anymore to, yep. to not deal with the, the stress. And it's a stressful thing, especially being a competitor and trying yep. to make a living doing mm-hmm. jujitsu is another thing. It like adds an extra stress to it. Can but it's been the one 100%. thing where it's like, it's just like, I can't walk away from it. And like, I can't stop trying to improve it for some yeah. reason. It's just like in my brain, it's just, and I know what it's like to feel like checked out of something because I've done it before where I've, focused 100 percent into something and then i'm like ah, i just don't care for it anymore mm-hmm. jujitsu's always been that one thing that like i never feel like i could just check out of it and be done with it um Man, I, think I think if, if you helped. i think if we if you checked out that's a big loss for for, for jujitsu and anyone <laughs> that you're anyone that you're having a direct you know um impact on because um just sitting here listen like i already knew i knew you were, i knew you were good and i knew you had a good understanding but listening to your talk is fantastic especially it's it, i'm not trying to downplay it but for a 25 year old guy to be at that good level of clarity um man i think you're going to be like like a lot of the guys that tend to come out of this area i think you're going to be a phenomenal coach that's going to produce like you know some some really good stuff and i think it's something that you. you know hopefully once that hustle of being a competitor is you know passes for you and you move more down that coaching line um that'll be you know hopefully it becomes less stressful and then you can just appreciate the 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 creative side which obviously you're very good at um thank you no yeah you know you know so thank you i'm just you know just just talking here but um listening you talk about eddie like that is kind of the same way that i looked at you and jason that day sitting there talking about some positions right because for me jiu-jitsu was just taught to me you know, I love my coach, great guy, but he, it, my coaches, I should say, or my, my influences, but a lot of jiu-jitsu was just kind of taught to me is here's a move, here's another move, here's another move, here's kind of like don't do this in this position, do this. And, you know, since coming to New York, I realized that there's a lot different ways to look at it and there's a lot deeper understanding than maybe probably 95 plus percent of the jiu-jitsu community are doing it currently um and a lot of people don't even realize because if you don't know you don't know if you haven't been shown something else you just you don't know um and that's why that's why this thing's just grabbed hold of me because i you know i didn't i've done jiu-jitsu since 2005 and then it wasn't till like you know 10 plus years into my um yeah 10 plus years into my jiu-jitsu you know, learning, learning game that I came over and went, fuck, this is, you know, the light just switched on and, um, I can see why now, you know, the way you guys are learning and, and, um, that's, I was talking to Jason Ray about this last time I was here, right? This whole, I want to get to that point where it's not just relying on here's a move, here's another move, here's a learnt move. Cause I've, I've learned a lot from Jason, but I've learned a lot of moves. I've learned a lot of concepts, but I'm like, how do I get to that point where, 
and this is, uh, nearly seems like a silly question, but how do you get to that point where you can have the confidence to look at a move and go, okay, I'm going to try and engineer something here myself. How do you, because how do you know you're not just heading down a road that's the fucking wrong direction and I've just wasted, you know, and that's, that's the thing I always find myself doing. And like you said with Eddie, like I wonder how Eddie has the confidence to be like, this thing that I'm dedicating and obsessing about, how do I even know this is even a thing? Or am I just wasting my time? Or do you just have to go through that process? You, you hear what I'm saying there? Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I get what you're saying. I hear, uh, I kind of go through that every day where it's yeah. kind of like I sit down and I'm like studying movements and I'm like thinking of new ideas. And then I'm just like, in the back of my head, you always have to think like, well, what if this is all, everything mm-hmm. I'm thinking about is just, it's Bro. not going to work. What if mm-hmm. everything I'm thinking about is just wrong? Mm-hmm. And the best way I, that I can have myself look at it is, is that I don't feel like there's ever anything that's wrong in jujitsu. I don't feel like there's like a wrong way to do anything. I think that there's always a less efficient way to do most things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's like little things that you could be doing things wrong. But I, in reality, I just I try never to look at things as wrong or right. I try to look at what's efficient at the highest level and what's not efficient. So. Like whenever I'm thinking of doing something different or I'm studying something, I'm thinking in my head when I'm training and like live training is important because that's where live training comes in. I feel like is like when you're troubleshooting movements, Mm -hmm. you need to try live reps. So I don't do too much dead drilling. Like I don't drill on people too often without Mm -hmm. any resistance at all. I'd rather go into training and try to make like two or three different things, the ideas that I have in my head work on a live training partner then drill it a hundred times on somebody that isn't resisting um and that's you what kind of helps sorry me. to cut in there but do you yeah, think no. that do you think that if um let's say that you're you're a white or blue belt watching this podcast do you think that if they're doing things along that route that they're going to have trouble in in that regard that that like do you think that different belt levels should maybe follow a different concept there or everyone could apply that strategy the the concept that i try to tell people to follow and i think everybody can kind of follow it whether you're white or blue belt Mm -hmm. is you need to get like a little bit of repping Mm -hmm. but i don't think that you should sit and concentrate just on dead drilling moves Mm -hmm. so but what i mean by like a little bit of repping i mean when i troubleshoot a movement i consider that my reps so like if i'm thinking of a new idea and let's say i'm working on just a transition in a reap and I'm just trying different ideas on how to make expose the heel off a reap on a standing person. Maybe the, my opponent's standing over me, and then I'm my idea is trying to find different ways to make this reaping position more effective to expose the heel. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm going through different ideas in my head. Maybe I'm posting my foot on the hip and then throwing a reap. Maybe I'm stretching my opponent out first and then throwing a reap. And I'm seeing which one I feel in my head is more efficient. The one that I feel is more efficient, I'll try a few more times so that I get that memory down in my head. Okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then I go into training and then I'm just trying that move and I'm trying to hit that move as many times as I can live on Mm -hmm. people resisting. And that's kind of how that's how I've always taken the approach of drilling movements. Um, And it's kind of like I learned that from Eddie, uh, one of the ways that we would drill and he took the idea. I forgot where he took the idea from, but it's some Olympic coach. Uh, I don't remember what sport it was. Uh, it was uh, so all of his um, students. I think it might have been judo or wrestling. I could be wrong. But all of his students only got one rep each of a move, and then the other person had a rep. So the way me and Eddie would rep movements was he would pick like three moves, and 
I would get one rep of the move. He would get one rep of the move. If I got the move wrong, I don't get another shot to do it again. And wow. then he would rep the move, and then we'd move on to the next movement, and then the next movement, and then recycle back mm-hmm. and do that two or three times and then go into live training. So right. the way he said it was is the way the coach saw it as if you only have one opportunity to do a movement in a, in a training session, it's going to force your brain to pay attention more. So you're going right. to pay attention to the details more because you're not going to be able to do the movement for, you know, some people put on a timer and they drill a movement for mm-hmm. two to three minutes yep. over and over again. And maybe in the beginning of the minute or two to three minutes, they're repping the move solid and they're getting all the details down. But towards the end of that, you know, maybe they're going through the motions, memorizing. Yeah, yeah they're mm-hmm. just going through the motions. Maybe they're not using great technique. They're not paying attention at that point. Now they checked out already. So mm. now their brain's not even registering. So now you're not even getting muscle memory down because now your brain's not even registering it because now mm. you're just doing a repetitive movement and you're probably not even paying attention. Where if you only have one opportunity to do a movement in a, in a certain uh, set kind of, like I look at it as like we each get one set, one rep, and then we do three sets total of three different movements. You're going to pay attention more if you're only going to get an opportunity three times to try the move. Yeah. And it kind of forces you to use your brain the whole time. That's how, that's how he explained it to me. And that's kind of like the approach that I've always took into when I'm drilling moves or coming up with ideas is like, okay, I'm troubleshooting a movement, try a few different ideas, see which one I like the best, get an extra rep or two, and then go try it live. Um, and then when I have moves, like when it's time to compete and I'm in camp, I drill where I only have one rep each and I take a training partner and then I drill, okay, this is what I'm working on today in training. We're going to drill these couple, like three or four sequences, one rep each let's drill. And then that's, that's how I improved the fastest. I felt like when I started drilling like that, I improved the fastest because before that I didn't drill at all. Um, because I just sorted that I just couldn't do it. My brain couldn't sit there and put a timer on and drill like the same move three times through, uh, for three or four minutes. Like I couldn't do that, but mm-hmm. drilling like this, I was able to, I, I was getting the, me- the muscle memory down of moves faster. I was learning faster and I felt like I was actually picking up the movements because I was paying attention the whole time that I was drilling. So it was a shorter training session of drilling, but I did feel like I benefited more from having less opportunities to drill a move because with Eddie, if I messed it up one time, that's it. I'm cut off. Mm-hmm. I don't get another rep. I didn't yep. get another rep. I had to wait till the next set. I had to wait till the next set. And by the next set, I might've already forgot the move. Yeah. So that's why I need to, I gotcha. need to pay attention because if I don't pay attention, I'm taking time away from my training partner's training. Would would and this they, would this yeah. concept work for everybody if you're running a class, for instance, or do you think this is a concept be- better for more experienced grapplers, or you know, can it be applied to everyone? I think this is a concept that you can apply in your own training. Like I feel like your okay. outside training, gotcha. Yeah, like people when they drill and like stuff an like open mat, they're like, I'm gonna work and yeah, like yep. I think like this idea when you're trying to work on your own, okay. Yep. Like game and like your own ideas. I feel like this is the way that I felt worked the best for me. Mm. I still think because not everybody can learn the same way in a class, especially it's a class setting with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I haven't tried teaching a large class using this idea. Mm. Um, but I do feel like it can 
work in a competition setting, mm. competition class setting, where it's yep. like when I'm so when you're training in competition class, you need to be 100% focused anyways. I know sometimes I'm not and I screw around and stuff like that. Like I like to mess around and, and you know, I like to have, have a little bit fun. of fun. But when, yeah, yeah, yeah. but when it's like time to compete, I do get more serious. Like if I have something coming up, I will be more serious. And this is like an approach that I, I've tried in the past and I, I haven't seen any issues with it when as long as everybody in the room understands that they need to be 100% paying attention, dialed in and ready yep. to train. Mm-hmm. And the people who take it seriously will get the, the drilling down this way. The people who don't take it seriously won't pick up the move. Um, so I do feel like it's harder to do in a class setting, a large class setting, yep. but in a small setting, competition training, yeah, I like just it. private, like on the mm-hmm. side drilling, I feel like it's worked pretty well for me and I've, I've felt pretty good about it. Um, I'm trying to find a way where I can do similar uh, drilling uh, for class settings, uh, mm-hmm. but I haven't really tried it that much. But definitely for smaller yeah. competition style training, I felt that it's worked pretty well for so me it's, personally. It's the M&M, it's the M&M one shot, one opportunity. Yeah. Yes. You only get one shot, though. That's right. That's right, mate. Um, yeah. That's beautiful. I like that. So talking about, um, you know, talking about Eddie, people say Eddie was ruthless on the training mats. I mean, yeah. I've I've had buddies that trained with um with Eddie, and and they said like they saw him hurt people. They saw like he's just an aggressive guy. He's gonna try and. I don't think that he tries to hurt people deliberately, but I think he's just uh, intense and he's so precise with his braking mechanics. Is he a um? Is Eddie a is Eddie a nasty grappler or is Eddie just so precise? It's like you're dealing with a scalpel. You know, if you're not careful, you're going to cut yourself. Type thing. I mean, it depends. Uh, I mean, from when I I haven't trained with him in a long time now. It's probably like yeah. over a year, maybe. Um, but uh. In the beginning, when I first started training with Eddie, it was that he was really trying to like hurt people. I think uh, okay. because the way the way he would always explain it is that he wants to know before he goes into a match if these breaking mechanics are actually going to work. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, not so good so for training partners. A, it's it's that's why he would not have many training partners, um, yeah. and a lot of people didn't want to train with him. Uh, he did learn over time to be a little bit better of a training partner. Like mm-hmm. during the time period that I was training with him the most, where I was training with him like every day, he did learn to stop hurting people. Okay. But I will say that before the 2015 ADCC, I was his very last role. He told me, are you ready to go? Cause this is my last role before I go to, to Brazil. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, you know, he's hurt me before, but it was always an accident. Yeah. This time he deliberately, broke my foot nah. just to see if he could break somebody's foot really with his mechanics what was it yeah. what what was it what, what uh, do you... it was an outside it was an outside hook yeah i mean partially my fault because it's like all right we're gonna go hard so i'm gonna give you, you the most that. realistic one possible i'm gonna hold out until the very last second yeah and it's just the last second came sooner than i could realize uh, it and it just broke and i was in a boot for like a good month after oh that. really oh so it's a yeah. pop the ligaments yeah. yeah yeah um and uh but it's just like that's how he trained, um, and uh, it's just like it's kind of like I never minded training with him because it was like you know what I need to be able I I just I felt like it gave me a sense of confidence that if I got out of one of his heel hooks, mm-hmm. I didn't feel like anybody in the world could heal with me. 
So that's why in my mind, I didn't mind it. I didn't mind having to deal with how dangerous it was at a certain point to train with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, as he started to progress, like this was early on when he first got his black belt, when he first started to like blow have up. a big name, like mm. blow up and stuff like that. This is still how he trained. And from what I understand, I only knew Eddie when he was a, a brown belt or he had just gotten his brown belt. He was a purple belt. From what I understand, he always trained like super violent, always hurt people. Mm. Um, but like I said, as he got more into like more, you know, more time and stuff like that and noticed that he needed to hurt people less to get good at jujitsu. He was a lot nicer to his training partners. Cause then he also realized that if I break all my toys, I have no toys to I've play got with. Nothing. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. That makes yeah, sense. So if he's like, if I break all my toys, especially now my toys are super limited because I'm not training at a big yes. gym where new toys are coming in every day for me to break. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. He learned to train without hurting people. So he's a lot nicer from when I was last training with them. Still hard training. You still beat me up worse than anybody I ever trained with. Mm-hmm. Um, but he definitely learned to stop breaking all his toys. And Man, he must have fucked up some people at Henzo's. You know, people just going in there to, to, to kind of like do the old, uh, yeah, I've been to Henzo's type thing. And then they run into Eddie and he just fucking snaps the inside heel. I got one good story. Uh, Big dude from Brazil. He had to be like maybe over six feet, maybe six two. Dude had to weigh like two twenty maybe. Um, this was before ADCC again, and uh, Eddie was rolling with the guy, and the guy was like violent. Eddie tapped him a couple times, and the guy was like tapping, but you could tell he was getting mad. Mm. Um, but Eddie was tapping him with upper body submissions. Eddie wasn't even attacking his lower body because the guy was keeping his body so far away. I just remember watching, and uh, so. But Eddie was like, he was rolling hard, but at the same time, the guy was bigger, so he didn't want to take the chance of getting hurt. Mm. So he was also, you know, rolling as respectful. And Did Jason Rao just text you? He just texted me. He must have just woken up. No. No, okay. No, he didn't text me. I messaged him before because I saw he was up at like 6 a.m. I'm like, what are you, 100 years old? Oh, he's, he's an old man. He's texting me right yeah. now. We'll talk, I want to talk about him, yeah. but we'll get to him. So yeah. tell me this. I'm loving this, this yeah, story. So... so Eddie's rolling with this guy, and then Eddie puts him in a triangle, and I guess this guy is just fed up with getting tapped by this fairly small person, mm. and he picks Eddie up all the way up to the ceiling, and if you train in Henzo's, you know those pipes. The yeah, ceiling right. isn't, it's, if you're well over six feet, if you lift somebody up literally yeah, over your brick. head, they're probably yeah. going to hit the pipes. Mm. Eddie's head went all the way up to the pipes, oh, no. and then the dude slammed him on the mat to get out of a triangle. And it was funny because he looked at John afterwards and I guess he was looking at John to yell at the guy and John was like, ADCC rules. Green, green light. You could, you could slam out of the submission. So then Eddie did the most violent outside heels ever. Oh, no. The guy, the guy screamed so loud. It sounded like the guy was being shot. And uh, all you heard was like a loud pop. Nice. And then afterwards, you see the guy sitting on the side, like ice pack on his knee, ice pack on his ankle, and like, but that like, that's where I learned that like, that was one of the times I learned like how dangerous Eddie could be. He's a dangerous he man. Really, yeah, no, he really is. <laughs> is is Eddie Cummings the best leg locker there's been? Uh, I I think like definitely one of the best. Um. Uh. I really, I, I mean, I, I know that's a hard question. Anybody. Yeah, it, it's, 
it's hard, but like definitely from like what I from what I know, he knows just based off knowledge. Like I can't say now in terms of like if he rolled with some of the yeah. other high level guys because I haven't trained them in a long time. I know from what I understand, last time I spoke to him, he doesn't really train that much anymore. Yeah. It's a shame. Um, he's trying to like move on to the real world, which sucks, and I know he doesn't want to, but that's another thing. Sad. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but from what I know, prime Eddie, prime, prime, yeah, prime Eddie Cummings. Cummings knowledge. I don't think there was anybody that could touch him. Uh, yeah. in terms of knowledge of leg locks and in terms of being able to perform leg locks on people at a high level, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I definitely think like what he knew in 2015 was totally different from what he was teaching me in 2018. So the game that he developed over the time of being able to compete against like, cause that ADCC was the first time that he got to compete against truly high level competition. So that was the first time he really got to test himself against what's considered the best people in the world. And uh, I think he really took that opportunity to be able to see where there's flaws in his game and he improved them so much. And it's kind of a shame that he never got to really show it that much. I agree. Um, yeah, totally agree. But he definitely made improvements in his game. And it's a shame that he never really got to show it because he just really didn't compete too much after that. Um, but uh, I mean, he might be one of the best team. submission grapplers of all time. He, he, he really yeah, could I, be. I definitely think so. I definitely thought that on a good day, Eddie could probably tap, anybody in the world that's yeah. how I if they felt. engage with him assuming they actually if they engage, engage with him. if yeah. they actually engage and yeah. do jiu-jitsu i feel yeah. like because like i've trained with a lot of good people and where at least i could get something going i could get some kind of attack going mm. most of the time with him i could just never get anything going mm. i could never get an attack going anytime i've ever got an attack going on him it was like a surprise sneak thing like i just mm. like sneak attack yeah. throw yeah throw like sand in his eyes that i kept in my shorts yeah, yeah, and then get yeah. something yeah, yeah. on him you know like that kind of but you do but, enough but rounds I, with anyone you'll have that moment where you catch them off yeah. guard you know but you know if you guys were both doing your a game you're saying like you're just not going to find a way through his yeah it's just like there was no way to get anything started which i yeah. think worked against him is because like it's a different thing when you train with when you if you ever got the opportunity to train with him you would see it's like once from the start you realize that this isn't like somebody else. Like mm. You realize this isn't like rolling with anybody else that you've ever rolled with. It kind of makes you shut down a little bit because you're like, wow, this doesn't feel like anything I felt before. I don't know what I'm going to do to get anything going. And at the time that you're thinking that is he's already attacking. Mm. So it's like if you're not just playing on the defensive and keeping your distance and trying to stay out of everything, you're going to end up in something. because. Yeah. It's just so hard to avoid it unless you're avoiding completely being engaged with him. Well, you the know? only people it's that have survived it. with him have just straight out not grappled with him. You may as well not even call yeah. it a match. You know, they've yeah. like the the Canuto match. Like Canuto went f- yeah. near him for a second and his leg got popped. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I cornered Eddie for that match and it was just like that was after frustrating. About, after ten minutes, I <laughs> just like I was just like I looked at like Javier and Christian in the corner and I was just like. I, this is a waste of time. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> he won't, like, he won't come out. Is it fair to say that he's so, and I don't want to, I mean, this is fantastic. Yeah. I don't want to talk about Eddie the whole time because there's so much to talk yeah. about. This is fantastic, man. I hope, um, and yeah. thanks for thanks for making the time to chat to us too. No, um, of course. Yeah. 
um, is it fair to say that Eddie is so committed to his game plan that he won't come out and, you know, like a Gary Toner, Gary doesn't give a fuck. As we all know, Gary yeah. will create, Gary will leave himself completely open on the off chance that he creates something, which he often does. Eddie kind of is the opposite yeah. grappler to that. Eddie is so calculated. Is it fair to say that sometimes, unless you had a grappling tournament where the rules dictated the guys had to engage, like a wrestling tournament, you know how they have to engage, um, that Eddie would have matches like that where he just wouldn't, the, if the guy wouldn't go near him and he couldn't go near the guy, he wouldn't open up to create something. Is that is that is that true? Yeah, so the best way that I can explain it is kind of like um, he kind of like, creates his game around he's never gonna ever allow you to create an opportunity to get something going on him because he's never going to allow himself to come out of position so the number one thing that he always taught me is never allow yourself to come out of position so it's never reaching never allowing the match to be engaged in a scramble like what i think also works against me where i think like somebody like gary has success is that gary does engage in the scramble gary does Tribes in the guys aren't giving opportunity, forcing opportunity, where Eddie is playing on the total opposite end of that, where it's like he's never going to do anything to just create opportunity. Mm. He's going to stay in position. And he's going to force you to either engage or disengage. Um, and that kind of comes from the idea of that <laughs> he just, I guess he always explained it to me, is that he doesn't, he thinks that like if you ever end up in a bad position, you did something wrong. Mm-hmm. You just need to always never end up in any kind of bad position. And that's kind of like the approach that I've always took, which I think kind of like gets me in trouble too with matches where people just don't want to engage is that I do try to make it where like how I was taught to play guard, where it's like, it's an impenetrable kind of force yep. field. Yep. Like, and nobody should ever be able to penetrate that. Nobody should ever be able to win a grip fight. Like, I mean, your guard has got to be one of the hardest guards to pass in jiu-jitsu. I mean, Gianni Grippo had absolutely no, like, that match with Gianni, who was probably a bit bigger than you, really, he was never going to pass that guard. Like, they was never looked even close. Like, your guard retention is phenomenal. Like, really, really good. You can see that. Thank you. It's, uh, it's like, that was the number one thing that he told me to work on. So, like, mm. when I first started training with him, he was like, before you worry about anything, you need to make sure that you have a guard that the best passers in the world won't be able to pass at your weight class. Mm-hmm. If somebody's your size or even a little bit bigger, you need to make sure that you never, ever get passed. Even in sub-only. So you see a lot of guys in sub-only EBI rules, they'll let their guard get passed. Yep. They'll play defensive. Mm-hmm. That's not how I was taught to play sub-only. I was taught to play sub-only where it's like you're never allowing somebody to ever get to a position on you. And, like, that's how I was taught to play guard. And that was the first mm. thing that he gave me to work on was guards. So that's why, like, that's one of the first things that I teach people is always to work on having a really good guard. Because then after that, you can develop everything else. Yeah. But if you get a good, like, let's say you get a good wrestler and maybe you just can't get on top of somebody. And all you've done is develop a good top game but never worked mm. on your guard. The second you're on bottom, you're never, you're not going to be able to retain yeah. guard on somebody good at a high level. So, I mean. And I and see that with you guys. You know, you guys have all got a very aggressive, strong guard from bottom position. Everyone who comes out of Henzo's has got that guard that's just a different type of thing for submission grappling, you know? Yeah, and I think, like, a lot of the defense and, like, it starts from having a good guard and without having a good guard, you can't really get any offense going from bottom if your guard is crap, you know? Yeah. So that's, yeah. like, the number one thing that he had me work on was guard and that's kind of, like, 
and he's approaches that his guard is never going to be passed. His guard is never going to, he's never going to lose a hand fight. So when me and him would roll, it would be a lot of the time would just be engaged on the legs. Yeah. Yeah. Engaged in legs. And it would start with the hand fight. So it's like, mm-hmm. that's another thing I always teach is that everything starts with the hand fight, whether it's from standing or from seated, you're mm-hmm. always starting with your hands. You need to make some kind of, you need to win the, a fight with your hands first before anything else. And now, that's, uh, yeah. Eddie, Eddie was a guy who never inverted a lot from my understanding. Um, even though he was a guy, he was a very good leg locker. And I mean, and you're probably one of the guys who inverts maybe as much as anybody, like maybe, maybe one of the most inverted guys that, that are around. Where did that come from you? If it didn't come from Eddie, or was that just something you just started to do? Uh, it was really just honestly something I just started to do. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of like I tried to play. So like I always tell people, I tried to imitate Eddie's game completely. And at that point when I was trying to do that, it wasn't clicking. Because mm. um, he plays a side guard, find... right? Like side guards, yeah, he's he big plays thing. Yeah. A side guard. He plays a big side guard. Like I play a lot of side guard too. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I play a lot of side guards, but I invert a lot as mm. well. And a lot of my attacks come with inversions, and I'm trying to be upside down a lot of the time. And I always used it as a means of, well, when I invert, it, I found it easier for me to retain guard. When I invert, I found it easier to get underneath people instead of trying to elevate them over me. Eddie always took the approach of making grips. Mm, getting guys over. Like a, yeah, getting a wedge underneath people's yep. hips and then elevating them over him. Where with mm-hmm. me, it was like if I couldn't get, I couldn't always get people elevated over me because whether it was size difference or whatever it was, but I could always find it to be a little bit easier to bring myself underneath them. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that's kind of like where that approach came from for me was that, all right, I'm having a hard time elevating people over me. Maybe I just need to go under them instead. And inverting was the best way to, to make that happen. And it was also helping with making my guard better and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, no, Eddie was always very big on just staying in, butterfly guard because it was like that was where he felt your elbows and your arms never come out of place like i said he never allowed his his body to come out of position mm-hmm. so if the elbows are ever more than 45 degrees away from the ribs that means the elbow those arms the arms are way too exposed and sometimes he felt like inverting you were just exposing too much where i just i learned to invert where i keep everything super tight so that i don't have to come out of position so i'm inverting staying in good position so i'm not inverting and flailing my arms and my legs yeah if you notice i only invert if i have my my knees to my chest and my elbows to my ribs and i still have almost like a side guard position Mm -hmm. like the idea of a side guard while inverting upside down and stuff like that to be able to get attack stalling to be able to get underneath people i mean you're basically like a fucking swiss ball that's what i liken it to it's like rouse the same like you know how yeah you know some guys invert and you just split straight through and you know, make their way through the guard. But, you know, you guys, it's like trying to jump on top of the Swiss ball. There is no way around it. You're just going to bounce back off it and then you can end up in a, you know, that's that getting under people and everything's just connected. And it's, it's, um, it's so good. Like, I think if we're talking reverse De La Hiva, you know, you and Jason Rao are probably two of the best players at that in submission grappling. Um, you know, uh, is that a guard that always, you know, worked with you? Because the problem with reverse, not it's not a problem, but um, you know, something around reverse El Hever, Eddie liked butterfly because both feet are on the inside, so both feet have inside position. You're safe, they're not. Reverse El Hever is like one in, one out, you know. So, so what's, yeah. you know, is that is that just something you have to be able to deal with? What's your thoughts around that particular guard? Because I think it's obviously I've really gone down that path because of the teachings of of Jason, but um, 
you know, you guys are just so good at that garden. You make it work at the highest level. Um, I, I think it was just, uh, it was really for me, just the approach of getting myself underneath. And like, mm. I, like you said, with, with Eddie, it was just the approach of, uh, you know, having two feet inside and being able to have square hips to always be able to elevate. And when the two feet are inside, you don't have that top leg exposed with the reverse Delaheva. You always have that top mm-hmm. leg exposed kind of. So it's with me, it's always like I'm monitoring my top leg by making sure that my knees to my chest, making sure that my knees in front of the hip, making sure that I'm always winning the hand fight with my free hand. Um, you know, it's just like a different approach. I, I feel like Jason also, uh, has like, a very like underrated guard kind of i feel like people don't really talk about his guard that much um but his guard is actually really good and he's like one of the i think he was playing reverse Delahiva even before i was playing it he was yeah he's been doing it for a while yeah he's been doing that forever um Mm. and he's like and he he i know took the approach from like he used to watch a lot of like Rafa mendez and stuff like that Mm. as as did i and like I didn't realize that I was playing reverse Delahiva until I started to, like like I said, actually try to understand jiu-jitsu. A lot of it was just, like, by accident. I was kind of, uh, like, in right, a Z-guard and... Yeah, I was kind of, yeah. like, in a Z-guard and just, mm-hmm. like, going upside down. Because gotcha. a lot of my early game was just Z-guard. Like, yep. that's pretty much what I played was a Z-guard, kind of like Craig Jones style. Yep. Um, yep. Where it's, like, Z-guard with scoop on the far leg and then use all those attacks to, like, you know, enter the legs. Mm-hmm. It just so happened that I would go upside down without controlling the far leg. And I didn't actually realize I was actually watching recently. I was watching matches that I had from like 2014 to 2017. I was like, oh, shit, I was actually playing reverse Delaiva this whole time at some moments. It's just I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. Yeah. I didn't really understand what reverse Delaiva was until I started to like understand jujitsu more. And that was at a time when I was injured. And I was watching a ton of like the meows and I was watching a ton of Hoffa and I was just infatuated with this guard that I saw these guys using at a high level. Um, and it was working effectively. And I just noticed that it was harder for guys to pressure on passes if the second that they inverted underneath. So I always looked at it as also as a basic idea of guard retention. I teach like the reverse Delahiva basic kiss of the dragon. I teach that as a method of retaining guard from the uh, knee cuts and stuff. The knee cut, yep. knee cuts yep. and stuff. I feel like it's a great way to just uh, retain guard. Um, it's just that's just an approach Eddie never took. Mm. That's an approach that I saw was effective, and I just kind of like was interested in it, and I just grew on it, and I just like accidentally was always doing it. Um, but I always still played like a, a butterfly guard and stuff like that. But I always was more in like half guard and Z guard. And it just yep. so happened that I was playing a reverse Delahiva by accident until I actually mm-hmm. saw that what reverse Delahiva the pathways, was. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then started to like actually look at it as, okay, I'm playing reverse Delahiva. Mm-hmm. I'm not playing a half guard and going upside down. Yeah. I'm playing reverse Delahiva now. That's kind of like how I came across it. I feel like um, a lot of us that had that same progression where we liked where we liked Zed guard, I was the same. I liked Zed guard, probably a blue belt. And then you start to go, well, if you're on their knee, I can play Zed guard. But then they come up onto that foot, and the Zed guard comes a bit 
you know, turns into shit a little bit, but then you realize, wait a second, reverse De La Hiva just fits straight in there. And I think like yeah. once you understand how they plug together, it um, you know, reverse De La Hiva is, you know, if we're talking guards for submission grappling, I mean, I think it has to be butterfly guard and then probably some variation of open guard, which would have to include, you know, reverse De La Hiva. Um, yeah. I mean, you and you and Rao, for people that haven't experienced a really good reverse De La Hiva with a good leg locker. By the time you know you're underneath, your your legs now basically in trouble. So you better have very good late defenses because you're going to get put in a leg entanglement. I think people don't realise, or if yeah. you if you manage to escape that, your back's going to be given. Like I think a lot of people haven't experienced a really sharp guard player in submission grappling, so a lot of them don't understand how good what you guys are doing is. And that's the hard thing. Like they haven't felt it because in their academies, a lot of people, you know, there's guys who are, you know, good enough in the gi, and then no gi is just their their gi game without the gi on, and this, which is not very yeah. good. You know, they haven't experienced, and it's hard. I wish somehow we could inject people with a fucking vaccine. Maybe they can do this before coronavirus vaccine. They can get a vaccine for where they can feel what it's like to have like a legitimate submission grappler fucking attack you like a savage, because that just yeah. changed changed my idea on everything. Um, yeah, I want to. I want to um, switch gears a bit. Yeah. I find myself studying some of your stuff because um, you, your game is right down the alley of what I'm doing with Jason as well. And actually, I need to just rewatch tonight your um, your EBI 15 run. And uh, you know, oh. congrats on that. There was a few other guys. Oh, I I asked people. Um, I asked uh, if people had questions they wanted asking. And one of the guys actually did ask me. He wanted to ask me. I don't know what he's actually his actual wording was. He's he's a black belt under my coach. Um, his name's Paul, and Paul actually wanted to know what did he want to know. Um, he wanted to know he wanted to know about your EBI run, but he um he was uh, wondering about your preparation for that EBI. That's what he wanted to ask because he he heard like something like there was a late like a late minute like last hour thing. Talk to us what happened there because that EBI was um this. EBI, I think, is still the best thing that ever happened to submission grappling, as far as I'm concerned. It's a different yeah. thing to ADCC, and it's a it's a it's a travesty that it's not going. Um, and I mean, you're you're a champion of EBI, which is a huge thing. There's only been what 15 or 16 proper ones, and then he turned it into the slap jitsu stuff. But um, yeah, you know, that's a legitimate claim that you've got. And you walked in and you submitted everyone except um, Geo in the final, which went to overtime from from memory. But um, you yeah. just cut through everyone with basically reverse De La Hiva and then entries into inside heel hooks was was like kind of the main mode there. Um, so first of all, was it a last-minute call-up? And then secondly, you know, talk to us a little bit about, about that run. So that was, that was yeah, your come-out so, party. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was definitely a last-minute replacement thing. A lot of people say, like, oh, we had it planned out and stuff like that. It was definitely not planned out, definitely not, not on my end. Um, Training for that. Because Eddie, just for people listening, Eddie Cummings was actually supposed to be in that tournament, correct? He was supposed to do it. Um, So all of my training for that tournament was me training with Eddie for him to do the tournament. So I wasn't training to compete. Uh, I had just come off a shoulder injury. Um, I hadn't trained really in like three, four months. And then I was training with Eddie to basically just help him get ready because this was at the time that he was not training in the city. And so it was just me and him training and then a couple other people and it was just in a small group training. I was in no way going to compete, even though a bunch of times Eddie was like, oh, Eddie was like, I'm going to put you in. I don't want to do it. All this other stuff like, but he's also, he always, 
anytime he competed, he was always so crazy anxious wise that he would always yeah. be like, Oh, I'm not gonna do it. Uh, yeah, I felt like that. Before, I, yeah. I'm not showing up. Yeah. yeah. So he would always do that. So I just wrote it off as ah, it's fine, it's whatever. Mm-hmm. Um he's gonna compete. And I wasn't taking training seriously. I just came off injury. I was training just to train with him and you know, I was training hard because it was his training camp, mm. but I wasn't in the mindset of competing. Like I wasn't eating the way I would normally eat if I was going to compete. I wasn't doing all the outside things in terms of conditioning or whatever it is that I would normally do if I'm going to compete. You know, I wasn't doing the things that I would normally do before I would compete. And uh, I was originally not going out to corner him and and train with him out there because I didn't have any money. I was, like, running on my last couple fucking, like, I think I had, like, $1,200 in my bank account at that point. Um, I was really considering, like, before that EBI, I was considering just not a, attempting to grapple professionally anymore because I had won all of the tournaments. I won finishers on it, Sapatero. Like, I won all these tournaments, but I wasn't getting a shot at EBI. And, you know, that was the thing that I was working towards. And mm-hmm. it just didn't seem like it was going to happen anytime in the near future. And I couldn't live as a 23-year-old in New York only having $1,200 in my bank account, making $200 a month, teaching two jujitsu classes a week for 20 bucks, that that money just paid for gas and food. Um, so it was kind of like I took the money that I had and I flew out to California and I did it just to be a training partner for him because I knew he didn't have Gary, he didn't have Gordon, he didn't have John, he didn't have anybody to go out with him anymore. He didn't have coaching or training partners or people to just be there to help him get ready. And so I went out there. I was out there a week before, and I kind of just turned it into like, all right, this is probably going to be my. I thought of it as, all right, this is going to be my last, my last jujitsu trip. I'm going to go out there, have fun, train jujitsu, experience EBI live in person, and I'm probably never going to compete in EBI ever. Um, and uh, and then it just happened like two days before the EBI. Eddie was supposed to be out there, and he just didn't show up. So, so let me get this right. You, you, show, you spent your last lot of money to get over there, and then you're waiting yeah. there, and then he didn't come. He didn't show up. Oh no! Oh no! So, so he was like, "Ah, oh, sorry, I missed my flight. I'm gonna fly in the next morning." So then, all right, I'm like, "All right, he's a psycho. I could see that." All right, yeah, <laughs> uh, so then he, again, like he misses the flight again the next morning. I'm like. Are you just not showing up? He's like, oh, I'm just really not feeling good. I have a flu. I don't even know if I can get it on the plane. I'll let you know. Fuck. So then it's like 24 hours before. I, no, I'm sorry. Then it's like the night before. I'm sorry. This is maybe 48 hours before, two days before. That night, the morning of that, he was supposed to fly out in the morning after missing his flight the night before. Mm-hmm. That night, he texted me. All right, here's the deal. I don't know if I'm going to compete. I'm probably not going to do it. If I can get you in, I'm not going to do it because I don't, I'm sick. That's basically what he told me. I'm sick. I can't get on a plane. If I can get you in, then I'm 100% not flying out. That's basically what he did. If I, if I, if I can't get you into the EBI, then I'm just not going to bother. Like if I can't get you in, then I'll just, I might fly out. I might not. I might compete. I might not. But if I can get you in, I'm definitely not flying out. I'm sick. I can't do it. Man, that's got to so be then, exciting for you, doesn't it? 
It was, but at the same time, I had a panic attack. I was walking yeah. on the Venice Beach boardwalk, and I had a panic attack because I'm like, you, like a legit, like a legit. Are we talking legit panic attack or like just yeah, freaking like a out? Legit kind of? Panic attack. I was just like freaking out. I was like, mm-hmm. no, you have to come. I can't do it. You have to come. I can't win. I, I'm not ready to do this. I can't do it. What are you doing? Are you by me? yourself? I haven't. I'm with uh, one of my friends. Uh, you, uh, you might have saw him. He trained with us. The tall, yeah, skinny, goofy-looking kid. Yeah, that's a nice way to describe someone too. I like that. That's good. He's my best friend, so I'm allowed to call him this. No, what's uh, uh, I forget his name because yeah. I remember he cornered you for that. Chris, Chris yeah. Chris, I want to yeah. say it's like Deluca. No, what's his what's his surname? Pagliuca. Yeah. Pagliuca. Pag- yeah, yeah. There we go. Italian, there we go. Yeah, yeah. Italian. Italian. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, so uh, yeah, no. So this was maybe this was 24 hours before the weigh-in. That morning, the day before. Uh, I got up super early because I was panicking. The night before, I was told in 24 hours I might have to step in and do the EBI because. Of the and there was big names on there, like so. Up. This is something you'd yeah. wanted to do. There was man, like when you go back through there, like obviously Jerry Martinez was in there, but you know there was yeah. heaps, there was heaps of um, heaps of well-established guys were in that tournament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. they already released the brackets, and it was like they put. A lot of people didn't realize, but like a lot of the guys that have been doing all the sub-only tournaments on the East Coast, like the biggest names that you can get were on the side that they put Eddie on. So that side that they put Eddie on had Junie, Mike Davila, John Battle. Junie wasn't going by Junie uh, at that stage. He was still like Mo. He looked like a like a nerdy. Yeah. What was he going? Yeah. He, was, he wasn't going Edwin. Edwin, Edwin. Yeah. Now, then yeah. he became Junie with the hair. And... Then he became Junie with the hair, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, so like a lot of people were like uh, the people who watched all the local EB, uh, EBI rules tournaments, like finishes mm-hmm. and stuff like that. They knew that that was the that was the heavy really, side. That was the heavy side of the bracket. And then on the other side of the bracket, you had some tough guys. You had like Ashley Williams and those guys, but they mm-hmm. weren't genuinely at the time known for being like sub only EBI rules guys. Yeah. Um, so Do you think Eddie stacked it that way for Geo? Is that is that, is that what happened? I don't know, but I definitely saw it as they put the like Ashley Williams. You see, improved a lot now. He's a lot better. Yeah, he's good. What I, he's good. Yeah. Um, but from what I saw, he like on that side wasn't really the dangerous in terms of submissions on that side. And the East um, Coast is known for just fucking killer submissions. Yeah, the East Coast at that point was known for like the best guys yeah. in submission grappling. Like everybody sure. was. Who I think was still is. Yeah. Was, yeah, and it still is, but like yeah. that was like known like, and I competed against all those guys. The Villa, the Villa was so on I that knew, side as well. Yeah. Yeah, and like I knew how good these guys were, so it was like that bugged me out too. It was like, oh shit, I got this mm. really tough side of the bracket, and I haven't really been training to compete. I've been training, so it's not like I'll say that I haven't been training. But that whole week, I went out to California the week before because I was like, you know what, Eddie, he knew I didn't have any money, so he gave me. He gave me a hotel. He's like, if you're going to fly out to help me out, I'll get you a hotel room. So he gave me a hotel room. So mm-hmm. I was basically just staying out there. All I had to do was pay for flight and food. So I was just like, all right, am I going to have fun? I'm going to go out to California. I'm going to hang out on the beach. I'm going to travel around. I'm going to stay. Yeah. Because I've never been to California. So I, I didn't train that whole week. So like I went out there super early. I didn't train the whole week because Eddie was supposed to come out early and train with me. So we were supposed to train together. So when he just didn't show up, I just didn't train. So that morning, the day before the EBI, I got the text, you're in. I'm like, all right, great. <laughs> so it was like 
roughly 24 hours before. Were I you on white? It, like, yeah, because I never really walk around too heavy, and and I was training, so like I it wasn't like if I was off weight, I think I had to cut like two pounds or something like that. I mean, you looked so in good went, shape, like the look at you didn't look out of shape, like uh, yeah, I wasn't like out of shape. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't like an issue of being in shape or being overweight or anything like that. Like I was in shape, but I wasn't like in the mindset of like, all right, I'm going out to this place to compete. Do you think that's maybe a good thing, but like, you know how, like, I know that I would do a lot of head miles coming up to someone. I'd be like, fuck this guy's now. I'm going to think about this. I'm going to think about maybe just going out there the week before. And then next thing you're on, like, maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. After, after I won EBI, Eddie said, we're going to throw you in more things last minute because that was like probably one of the best performances I've ever had competing. Um, and it was really, I didn't feel any, like, like I felt stress because like it was like but the stress came from is like i remember before i went to go to the venue to like we did the weigh-ins in the morning and like i was fine i was good i was like you know whatever i'm going to weigh in Mm. and like i just really wasn't stressing it and then i was like sitting in the bathroom like i like what i usually do is i weigh in i eat and then i fall asleep and i sleep until i'm ready to leave to go compete that's what i usually do um and uh i just I got up and I went into the bathroom and I sat in the bathroom for like an hour. And I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, can I really win this freaking thing? Like I'm going into this, like, ex- like I want to win, but can I actually win? And it's just like, my brain hit like a mental block where I was just like, I don't even know how I'm going to win. Like, well, you I were second guessing yourself. Like I was second guessing myself. I was just like, mm. I don't even know how I'm going to pull this off. I'm just like, I, I, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I'm just like, I'm like in my head, I told myself I'm going to win. Because mm-hmm. you never want to tell yourself you're going to lose. You don't want to go. I, I never went into a comp- competition saying I'm going to lose. I told myself I'm going to win. But it was just like, I how am I going to win? My, I'm just like, I don't even know how. Like, I was mm-hmm. just like, I don't know how I'm going to win. And it was just, it was a different feeling because there was no pressure leading up because I wasn't supposed to be there. All the pressure was in Came 24 light. hours. Yeah, yeah. Like, it was yeah. 24 hours of just, it wasn't even like, I didn't even have time to, like, worry as much until that hour before I had to leave because it was like the it didn't hit me till that hour before I had to leave because it was just like that 24 hours before when I first found out it was like okay I had a seminar that 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 night it was like okay now I need to figure out I need to go downstairs now I need I needed to worry about my weight I needed to see where I was at in my weight so that took my mind off of worrying mm. about like yep. what was going on exactly it wasn't final until right at the end yeah Exactly. And then I had to like, I had to worry about teaching my seminar that night. So then I had to figure out what I was going to teach. I had to worry about getting at least a couple rounds in just to break my wind because, you know, if you haven't broken any wind in a week and you don't want it to be the first thing that happened when you go out there. So it was like, I had to get a couple rounds in and then it like didn't really. And then it was like, all right, now I need to make sure to eat a good dinner and then I need to make sure to get to sleep early. So that's like, that was that 24 hours it was like there was so much going on that I didn't really have a chance to really panic. Once it's I called, got the um, test that I'm it's in. It's called busy work. Yeah, your mind had busy yeah. work. Yeah. Yeah, so it was just like once I got the text that I'm in, it's just I didn't have a chance to like panic anymore. So it was like, all right, I need to do this, this, and this. Busy work's good. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it kept me busy. It was just that hour before mm. I had to leave where I was just sitting in the bathroom and I just wanted to cry because I was like, I don't, I know I'm going to win. I know I'm going to win. Yeah. That's what I told myself. I know I'm gonna win. I feel it. I just don't know how. It was like. Was it, it was a big weird. adrenaline dump? Like, yeah, it was like I don't know if it was an adrenaline dump 
or it was just like uh, it was weird. It was just like a weird feeling where it's like I know you, I'm gonna win. I just do don't you get that out. feeling? I've had that feeling before bigger matches, and obviously I never competed in NBI, but I I competed on a, a big local show recently last year, and you know I've, I'm always talking with my my students about competing, and and we all have nerves, and I I'm the same way. I think anyone that says they don't, don't are generally probably lying. You know, there's probably a couple of freaks yeah. that don't, but I think most people, and, and, and then, you know, normally the guys who are more like you and I are who think about things, we're probably worse on ourselves. And I found that there's that moment where you're like, this is happening. And I liken it to, you know, when you're stood in line on the roller, you know, to go on a roller coaster when you're a kid and you're yeah. fucking shooting yourself and you, am I going to go on it? And then once you're in the line, it's like, fuck, it's happening. I can't, um, it's yeah. you know you get bolted in you're like okay this and it, it, is that that like you were having that feeling that was yeah. that was the exact feeling that yeah. I was having from the second like I said that that hour up mm. until the first match like it was like that feeling of waiting to get on a roller coaster it was like yeah, yeah this is like every step was closer to what's happening yes. like yes I yes. got there and it was like all right I'm here I got two hours three yep. hours before this starts now I'm gonna mm-hmm. sit around I'm gonna wait. And then I changed, and I was like, oh, man, it's that much closer. And then, like, then the show starts, and I'm like, fuck, I'm first match up. This is really happening. I went, and I found, a, like, a small little area to sit and, like, panic cry, I guess, and mm-hmm. scream and listen to music and, like, just get myself ready to go. And then it was just, like, this weird feeling of everything turned off once they told me, all right, it's time to go. Yeah. And then I stepped up mm-hmm. on the stage, and it was just, like, Best feeling I ever. would say it was yeah, it was the best feeling ever because it was just like a, it was an outer body experience kind of almost. It was like once I was on the mat, it was like all doubt and second guessing went away, and it's just like mm-hmm. my body just reacted, and I just didn't even need to think about it. Yep. Um, and every time I've had that happen to me, I've had the best uh, performances. Yeah. Is when my mind just kind of like turns off to the the outside world, and is only like. It's like I didn't even know that there were people in the room. If you would have asked me who was sitting in the front row during that whole tournament, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. You were uh, fucking dialed in, it sounds like. It's just like it was just like it was weird. It was just like the whole time I'm panicking, I don't know what's going on. Like I, like the whole time I'm thinking in my head there like if I just open this garage door and run to the airport, I could get home and nobody yeah. would even see me. Yep. Nobody even see me leave. It's like Mm-hmm. it's just like that feeling up until the moment that I stepped up on the stage and then for some reason all that just disappeared and that's like one of the reasons why I love competing so much is because mm-hmm. that's competing is probably the only time ever like when I'm 100% dialed in and like really like in it the moment like in the moment and, and able to like really concentrate it's the only time in my life that I could find myself that I find myself not thinking about anything and it's but what's going on and it's the best feeling in the world for me that's like one of the reasons why i enjoy competing so much i haven't been able to get that feeling in a while because there's so many once i won ebi there's so many outside things going on with drama with this one and that one it's like mm-hmm. it took away from me being able to where like now it's like i'm competing and there's drama behind if i'm gonna win or lose or there's always you yep. know always thinking of outside things it's like that ebi is same with like finishers like it's just for some reason everything else in the world turned off and it was like the best feeling in the world and I was able to just go compete without any second thoughts or like it was it was honestly the best thing in the world was that like better than even winning the tournament was the fact that I was able to be in a place where nothing else really mattered and that's kind of like 
like I said, that that's like the number one thing that I love about competing all the time. It's like you said with the roller coaster. It's like you build it up in your head as this crazy mm-hmm. thing, and like it's gonna, it scares you and all this other crap. And then it's like, and then every time I've ever competed, afterwards I'm like, man, that was a lot of fun. Like do it again. I built it up in my head. Like let's do it again. And mm-hmm. after like that first match, I was like, I turned to like my friend though. I was like, I'm gonna win this tournament. Fuck yeah. I'm gonna win. I was just yeah. like. I, I'm going to win. And it's just like not a single second thought came in my head. And that's why it's like when I'm like that, like that's like that's the best time in my life right there. So Man, like, I love that's it. That's like, it's the best yeah. story. That's so good. And look, I I hope that you can find a way back to it because you're it would be a complete waste. You know, we, we saw maybe Eddie not quite reach his potential. You know, he had some very big wins and very – I would hate to like for you to be at a stage where you're 40 and, and kind of be like, uh, you know, I could have done that. Like, so, you know, for, for what it's worth, I, I hope you can get back on the, um, you know, once all this shit clears up and I hope you can get back to that position where yeah. you're doing your thing. Cause man, it's, it's a beautiful thing to watch you go out there and do it. Like the performance that you put on it at that EBI was razor fucking sharp. Like for anyone that understands proper, proper submission grappling, like we're talking about, um, I, like I said, I rewatched it tonight. And I'm like, fuck. There's a few things in here that are that are perfect things I've been training, things I've been teaching. That I'm like, he's doing it. And there was there was some breaking mechanic stuff that that you you know about that you know we've been talking. Um, I've been talking with with uh, Rao about and um your mechanic, your breaking mechanics and that were were different to like what we've been practicing. And it's funny, like he said he said to me a few months ago, he said, oh, we've kind of fixed or changed the braking mechanics for an inside hill. We realized JC was doing this thing that we, none of us really realized he was doing. And, you know, I saw that in those, in those videos. Um, yeah, I don't want to give anything away, but it. Jason, yeah, but Jason noticed it. I didn't even realize it. Um, and usually like, I kind of like watched a lot of tape, but I, I never really watched a lot of tape on myself until Jason was like, did you realize that you're doing, you were doing this at this moment? And I was like, mm-hmm. no, I didn't. And that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to go back and watch some of my matches because maybe some things I did, I didn't realize are better than what I'm doing now and they can be incorporated and stuff like that. But yeah, no, for sure. I appreciate that though. <laughs> Man, I um, I want to bring up, I don't even know if it will work on this, but I wanted to bring up the, I wanted to bring up the, the video of a couple of those breaks because they were just absolute things of beauty. Um, uh, let me see if this is going to work. I'm not going to put the sound on, but can we see that on that screen or not? Is that clear or not? Uh, it... It's not the most clear. It's a little fuzzy on my end. I'm not yeah. really sure how it would look. Don't know whether um, it's going to work. Because I don't know. I don't, oh, there we go. It just caught it. Because it's because it's blurring yeah. the background. Yeah, it's it's going like in and out kind of. Where it's clear and then it's not clear. Yeah. Like right there is pretty clear, yeah. Okay, I've worked it out. Give me a sec because I'd like people to be able to see this who, who are watching this. Yeah. I don't know whether this will get us kicked off for YouTube when I put it up or not, but yeah, hopefully nah, it doesn't. It should be fine. This is ripped straight yeah, off. Now you, yeah, now you can see it real good. Yeah. But this belly down here, that break right now is... Yeah. Is yeah. Beautiful. Like, that's that's classic. But this is the you know, beautiful reverse deliver here. Um I mean, you talk us yeah, through no. it. I mean, you know it better than I do. Yeah, no, I mean, it, this was just like something that I was working on a lot. And I noticed it worked well when guys were turning out. So like a, a lot of people, they try to do this reverse deli. Heva entry, I noticed when the guy's pressuring forward. Um, when the guy's pressuring forward is where I go like full kiss of the dragon. I'm actually trying to attack the far leg. 
because the far leg is close. The near leg is a lot of pressure. So it's going to be hard to get the top leg in and free the bottom leg. So when I teach this move, I teach it as a means of dealing with when you're in the reverse Eliva and the person is trying to pull their leg out and disengage. When they try to pull their leg out and disengage, it makes it easier for me to throw my leg over the top and get my bottom leg out, inverting underneath, attacking that leg. That's why I like that look very clean is because he was giving me the exact reaction that response I you wanted the exact response that i wanted to be able to to hit the move cleanly um there are ways that like you can throw in like that under cross type grip when they're pressuring forward and stuff like that but i've always found that it's harder to do it that way mm. whereas if i when they're pressuring forward attacking the far leg if they're trying to extract the leg and and turn away it's where that near leg attack comes in like the best. And that's why I think like that, that entry, like it looked as clean as it did because he gave me the exact response that I needed to like hit it properly. Man, it was, it was, it's, it's basically like a knee side Imanari. It's a forward pummel, yeah. right? Or front pummel, forward pummel, front yeah. pummel. What terminology do you like uh, to use? It? Maybe like a forward pummel. Yeah. I'd probably say. Yeah, yeah, but it's a near side Imanari off the reverse Eliva. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's just attacking the, the near side leg. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. As opposed to the front leg. Yeah. It was um it was beautiful. And then I brought up I'm gonna bring up another one because I think the other one was beautiful too. I mean you you've obviously seen these before, but I think this is this is good for people that are watching. Um this was uh Davila. Yes. So Davila, for people who don't know, you know, Marcelo Garcia product. Um, I actually want to say, did he, he might have been trained at Henzo's in the beginning, didn't he, Davila? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me and Mike used to train a lot together. He was yeah. uh, he was a Henzo guy, and you know, there was all the you know the issues with when he did the first EBI that he did, and then he ended up leaving. Um, but no, Mike was Mike. I knew was always very good. Uh, I used to train with Mike all the time. Mike was like one of the guys that was like supposed like he was one of the the, the top level guys in the room and stuff like that. Uh, and it's actually funny is that this, uh, this finish that I hit here, it looked it like you popped like, it. Uh, yeah. The, the yeah. break was probably, that was, I feel bad. Mike's super cool guy. Mm-hmm. That break was the worst break that I ever had in competition. Um, in terms of the way it felt. Um, and it wasn't you intentional. Can it. it was just like my breaking so mechanics clean. were really, yeah. My, my breaking mechanics were really on point and we know, and Jason knows we figured out why, like what I, what I was yes. doing. Let's not um, tell people. That, yeah, but uh, here that that grip break, um, it kind of like uh, I don't know how I did it. Uh, it was kind of like one of those things where remember when I told you like my brain just turned off and it was just like going. Yeah. That that grip break was actually like an an accident. I kind of like figured it out on the spot. Really? Because I just rewatched that about five times, and I went. Yeah. I, I said I actually texted that video to Jay Rao and said, Yeah. Why haven't we been doing this? It's a, you know, it's an overwrap on that secondary, and you were grabbing back on the primary. You just came up with that yeah. on the spot. Yeah, it was kind of like it was something I I don't think I ever tried it in training before. Wow. It was just kind of like I was thinking. Like, I just remember being in the match, and it was just like I remember his feet were together, but they weren't crossed. So in my head, I was thinking, how can I separate his feet without losing control of the second leg? Mm-hmm. And for some reason in my brain, it just registered as reach over with my forearm to the far leg and the legs will just split in half. And that's exactly what happened. As I came up, I put pressure by heisting on top. I controlled his hip so he wasn't able to, to roll through. 
by reaching over with my forearm, I was able to create like kind of like a crowbar motion where I was able to wedge his two feet being trainer feet together as opposed to cross. I was able to wedge them apart enough to get space to where my arm that was uh, my attacking arm, the heel hook arm, was going to be able to get between. And I was going to be able to, as his feet were booted, I would be able to catch the toes to draw my elbow back and be able like to catch stinger, the heel yeah. Mm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's kind of like where that just yeah. kind of like, hey, it's crazy. Like, I honestly, never drilled it before. It just kind of like ah. came up on the spot. And like, that's why I really try to tell people it's like, you have to force yourself to problem solve in training because sometimes you just got to come up with something randomly. Mm. And, you know, that's, I mean, that's, I feel like that's Gary, quite impressive. That's where I feel like Gary is so good is that Gary, a lot of the time, what I noticed is with Gary is he problem solves on the spot. And that's why he's so good in the scramble is that he's able to, to make his mind react so fast. He thrives in chaos. Under, yeah. He thrives in chaos. So he's able to make his mind react and figure out things on the spot. And that's why I like it's, it comes from the same thing of like understanding jujitsu from concepts instead of just moves. Yep. And for like sure. that, yep. that, that's why I like, like that moment I like, it clicked in it clicked later on i didn't realize i was like oh cool i did some random shit and it mm. worked but afterwards it was like okay I, it was there was a concept behind what i did there and it worked that's well, why it been, worked because there was a concept you'd been coached on the concept of the release problem basically like don yeah. danaher talks about it all the time like obviously before no one knew what that was but john talks about it a lot now and you knew yeah. that if i release that secondary i'm chasing a single leg it's nearly impossible to against anyone good we know it's nearly impossible to hit yeah. you know a single leg you know inside heel hook nowadays i'm sure Davila would have turned out of that otherwise you know you maybe you would have yeah. caught him on the roll but it would have been hard um and, and i knew how good he was at hiding his heel because we yeah. had a match once before and i couldn't tap him in regulation i submitted him mm-hmm. in, in overtime with a rear naked choke and mm-hmm. i knew that if I got in because that first match we had, I couldn't even get in on him. Mm. And then a year later, I got in. I was like, all right, I got in. Don't let go of the second I know dream. how I know how good he is at slipping the heel. If I let go of the yep. second leg, he's gonna get out, and mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to get in again. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to go to overtime because I knew in my head I'm saving my. I need to have as much energy as I can going into the finals because I knew that it was gonna be hard to sub Geo. I knew that it would be very difficult. Yeah. So I knew that that match might go to overtime and I'm going to need my energy. So I got to conserve my energy and I knew that I needed to control that second leg as long as I could because I knew if I the second I lose that second leg, it's gone. I knew that his heel slipping ability was good yeah. and he was going to be gone. And I didn't know if I'd be able to get back in again. Yeah. And it just so happened that heisting on top with second leg control was always something I did. Mm. That overwrap over the top leg to the far leg to separate the legs was yeah. just like a random thing that I just like Randomly. I don't even know what happened. It I'm going like to be adding random. it to my rotation now. That thing, yeah. uh, I don't know and how I've missed it. It's something that I, I brought it back, and I've been using it a lot in training before I got uh, quarantined into my house. Yeah. It was something that I was using a lot, was using that overwrap, and it was, it's been working really well. So yeah, you kind of go parallel, nearly like parallel with yeah. the secondary tibia, and then, but you yeah. actually gripped the primary leg. That was the thing. You gripped the primary leg, yeah. which allowed you to split um, when you took the, the dig, and then, you know, that it stinger just exposed the... strengthen his legs to be mm. able to, to get to that second leg and split the legs. That wedge between the two legs made it harder for him to keep his legs pinched tight together. Man. And uh, yeah, no, that was just something that randomly just like came across. 
somehow just like happened. I don't even know. <laughs> well, fucking congrats, because that's nice. I just picked that up. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go back and find a bunch of your old matches and and find out some more secrets that I've been uh, missing. Yeah. <laughs> right, that's a tip for people. Um, look, we I want to I want to um I don't want to hold you up all day, JC. I know you've got oh, you no. up. Um, I got you. But th- thanks again for talking to us. It's uh. No, of what, course, no. Thank you. What is it over here? It's about midnight. I think I've been I had a couple of coffees before I got started, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. I wanted to. I wanted to uh, I wanted to talk to you about Jason Rao because uh, I think I still yeah. feel like he's a he's a hidden gem in submission grappling. Um, people are probably sick of hearing me talk about him, but the best guys in the world talk about him the same way that I am. Like um, Gordon Ryan, if 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 he's ever asked who's the guy to Henzo's that no one knows, the first thing he says is Jason Rao. Like he says it every time. Yeah. And pretty much everyone you talk to goes, this guy submits me more than anyone else. Like it's just disgusting. Um, I know you guys are. You guys are perfect for each other. You guys still train together a fair bit, and, and that's such an unbelievable connection of two really good guys. Um, it's a bit of an open-ended question, but how did you come about? Did you just meet Jay at Henzo's? How did it kind of come about that you guys ended up being these, you know, really good training partners for each other? So the first time I met Jay was actually we were supposed to we were in a division together. Oh, really? That was the first time I met him. Yeah, we were in a division to compete against each other. He made 155 pounds, and I what? competed at 155 pounds. Yeah, Jay made 155 pounds. Man, he must have looked sick. He did. He looked like he was dying. Yeah, uh, fuck. And I remember the first time we actually like spoke. He like uh, we were in a diner together, and he looked like he's dying. He just made 155 pounds, and he uh, I don't remember where it was that we were at. I think I was sitting at the table, and he walked by, and he asked me, "Hey, man, did you cut any weight?" And I was like. No, and and then he was like, oh man, and then he's like, good luck today or something. I don't remember exactly, but I remember he asked me if I cut any weight because he looked like he was dying. He cut a lot of weight. He told me for those that don't dying. know, Jay Jay Rouse nowadays he's uh he's as the Americans would say he's thick with C's like yeah. extra C extra C's on the end. What C's. I mean, Jay's like uh in in, Austra- in Australian and in, in the normal world he's probably like eighty five kilos for American. That's probably like. What are you guys measuring in nowadays? Pounds, isn't it? It's very like he's like a hundred and yeah. hundred and what is he? Hundred eighty five pounds. Hundred ninety. Ninety between hundred ninety and ninety five, maybe. Yeah, yeah he's thick. So he's a little, he's a little thicker. He's right not now. a fifty five. No, and he made fifty five. So that's the wow. first time we met. Yeah. And then uh, after that, we trained at Henzo's, and I remember, I was like, nobody was really beating me up besides like Gary, Gordon, mm. Eddie, like because those are the best guys in the room. Mm-hmm. And Jason, I trained with him, and he beat me up. And I was just like, "What the fuck should happen?" Like I was like, "What the fuck?" What, what? I was like confused. I was like, "What just happened?" Yeah. And then we didn't train again until years later. But that was the first time I trained with Jay. And then we didn't train again until years later. And it was just like, it was just like I remember I was like, "This guy beat me up years ago. I'm gonna train with him." Yeah. And then I trained with him. And he came to one of Eddie's comp classes. Like we always knew each other, and we we uh, and stuff like that. And uh, I think like the first time we trained again after that time was years later in Eddie's comp class. I don't remember otherwise. Mm. And uh, I remember I trained him, and I was like, "Holy shit, this guy's really good. I can't I can't tap him." Mm. I was like, and I'm like, I'm like, usually I tap people. I'm like, I can't tap this guy. He's really freaking good. And uh, and then we just started to like build a friendship like he started to come more often to henzo brooklyn to train with eddie uh i started to go to to like uh 
Henzel Bayside and he would be there. And then we just started training more consistently together. And I was like, man, this guy's really good. Like he, mm. like I can't do anything to him. Like maybe I can get some offense going, but like I can't tap him. And it's like, what it's the fucking impossible. He's and so like, hard to submit. He's like, so kind of... hard to submit. Mm. And it's just like, that's just kind of like we started texting back and forth and stuff like that. And then, uh, and then it just became that we would always text each other back and forth about technique. And then it became that he would text me or video chat me or send me videos of him roaring like a dragon and then uh, <laughs> doing jiu-jitsu. And, you know, it's just like that's how we just got started. And now we just we pretty much talk almost every day for the most part. Yeah. And uh, he's a fucking awesome dude, too. With each other, you know, we train with each other like two, at least twice a week now. Yeah. Uh, like before the trials, I was. He basically like let me train at Sarah's every single day, all day. So I like how I used to spend my time at Henzo's in the city. I spent for two months getting ready for the West Coast trials at Sarah's and stuff like that. And he's got a lot and of people don't really realize good training. How good it is there, right? Like the guys are no, good. No, Sarah's is actually the guys good. Sarah's guys are good. Like Sarah's, the guys are really good. Like it's like I don't want to say like I don't like don't get me wrong. The training at Henzo's is good. Yeah. But outside of like the core guys, yeah, it starts to the level, you know, yeah. the level lowers a yeah. little bit outside yeah. of the core guys from what from what from when I was there. Um, when I'm at Sarah's and I train with Sarah's, it's a room full of brown mm. and black belts. It's a room full of guys that have been training for years. It's a room full of guys with a lot of experience. You're gonna get a tough roll if you roll with at least half the room and it's a big room. Mm-hmm. Half that room is black belts, brown or black yeah. belts. So you're gonna get a good rounding, probably no matter what. So I got some of the best training I got when I went to Sarah's, and I was doing my camp at Sarah's. Um, yeah. And I, I do try to. Now my teaching schedule is a little bit more hectic because I've been trying to get like being an adult in order, like actually mm-hmm. making a little bit of money. So like I got a little bit more of a teaching schedule. Um, That's but, a base like, side, before, right? You're teaching a base side. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm teaching at the Henzo Brooklyn Academy. Oh, sorry. Sorry, the Brooklyn Academy. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so, uh, like, but I do, like, before I compete, I plan on doing my camps at Sarah's. Like, I plan on making mm. sure that I'm there yep. a couple times a week to make sure that I train with Jason, but to also make sure that I train with, like, all the other tough guys that are there that people don't even know. Like, there's a yeah, lot just of like the Tuesday night class is fantastic yeah the tuesday night class you're gonna roll with guys that either fight in the ufc or you're yep. gonna roll with guys that are high level black belts that just don't compete yes or they competed in the past and don't compete anymore mm-hmm. you know like it's always good training there so i mean that's probably one of my favorite places well, they've to train, got Raul, especially when i'm getting ready they've got Rao teaching them and 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 what you know f- for how good Rao is on the mat he might be an even better coach like i haven't um i don't i don't attach myself to just anybody and I've attached myself to him as effectively my coach nowadays and man yeah. like my my understanding of jiu-jitsu and and my game and then what I can do for my students is like it's never yeah. ever been before and it's because of that guy um you yeah, know he's yeah. I mean now at this point when I like train with Jay like when I talk to him about jiu-jitsu it's like I look more for his advice than he does mine and like you know it's He just... definitely looks to you for advice too I, I can no, see I, that but yeah in my mind I see myself as looking more to him rather than bouncing ideas i'm actually finding myself where i'm trying to just learn more from him than anything Mm. rather than give him my ideas i want to know what he thinks more than anything now at this point you know it's just like because 
you know, it's like you always find, like, I, I kind of look to him more than anybody else in terms of my jiu-jitsu now at this point. Yeah, I'm definitely know? doing because that. I know how much, because I know how much knowledge he has. I, I do mm-hmm. find myself now at this point, like, it, for a while, it was like you bounce ideas more. And now, at, at this point, it's like kind of like, sometimes I just want to sit there and just see what it is that he's doing. I want to hear mm-hmm. what it is that he has to say about a position. So it's like it's come to that now. It's like because I know how good he is, you know. He's like a fucking. He has now. He's like an autistic savant. He can remember things very, yeah. very well. Like he can remember. Yeah. He can remember a, a private he did with Danaher two years ago, and he can remember it specifically. Yeah. And and that's a really impressive skill yeah. that a, guys yeah, have. He has a very good memory, especially when it comes to jujitsu. Yeah, really then, then yeah. his ability to extrapolate, and it's funny, like a lot of the way you were talking to me before about how you went, how you got taught by Eddie to kind of engineer things. Uh, I see Jason do the same thing, you know, because he, he's not, yeah. he doesn't have, he doesn't have someone on his shoulder saying, "This is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to do." He's he's doing what you're doing, you know, creating this stuff, and that's why, you know, I'm I'm really grateful that I've got people like you guys to to lean on so you know it's uh thank you for that i appreciate that even though you're indirectly doing it but um (laughs) man it's 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 funny how what you two guys are doing over there in training sessions you know on the other side of the world is impacting the australian grappling scene like i'm my guys are you know starting to do well and and are going to change the scene over here in the next few years and it's a a direct influence from you guys so it's it's funny how that um yeah that that ripple effect concept happens you know so please don't um you know, don't second guess yourself and don't don't give no. up on this. I think you you have a massive. This should be how you make your money. This should be how you, you know, once you work out how to do that. And I mean that's different for everyone. But once you work out how to make this a a living for yourself, um, I think this is something you should be doing. You know, until you fucking retire for sure. Um, yeah. Man, I, I could talk. That. I could talk to you all night, but I feel a bit rude that I've <laughs> I've already stolen two hours of your time. Um, no, no, it's fine. I mean, how about I'll uh, we'll finish up there. But yeah, thanks, thanks so much, and and maybe I can get you again no, one day, and and we'll um, because I'm sure people are going to really enjoy this. Um, but no, yeah, <laughs> keep keep going with it all. Thanks so much for that. Um, have you any sponsors or anything at the moment, JC? Anything anything you want to uh, shout out or? No, not at the moment. I'm kind yeah. of just like a freelance guy now. Okay, He's freelance still, uh, guy. Yeah. Yeah, Yo, just a freelance. Just a freelance guy, you know. What's uh, what's uh, the prognosis? When are you going to be able to train again, mate? This is this is fucked. This is um. Uh, oh, Jesus. You know, honestly, yeah. I ordered a grappling dummy and some puzzle mats. And, oh really? Uh, Getting that desperate? So Nick Ronan's yeah, grappling. So, uh, Have you seen Nick Ronan's uh, Facebook? Is him wrestling? Maximus, oh. His Maximus dummy. Yeah. Oh yeah. So uh, I mean, that's basically. Since I got to start doing something, just doing like push-ups and pull-ups and stuff like that is just not enough. Yeah. Like I'm watching a ton of tape. Like I watch jujitsu now more than I have in the past six weeks Mm -hmm. ever in my life. Like I watch, I've watched every single ABCC. I rented every single ABCC on Brutal videos um, that they have. Uh, So it's like I'm watching so much tape and it's like I have so many ideas in my head of things and it's like. I can't get a training partner right now because it is, it's hard. Um, and being as though, you know, my girlfriend works for the hospital. So like she is exposed. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to just in case expose anybody, Mm -hmm. you know, because I would feel bad. Um, So I am going to, I'm going to wait until, you know, to to train with somebody else until it's like a little bit safer. 
um, where it seems a little bit safer. Uh, but, you know, I got my grappling dummy coming in. I'm going to set up some mats in my grandmother's garage uh, yep. that doesn't live too far away from where I am now and, uh, you know, do whatever it is that I can, you know. Yep. Uh, even if it's just getting some reps of just drilling some passing sequences, some grip-breaking sequences, just something, just doing something. Um, yep. I feel like jujitsu is a lot of technique and a lot of technique comes from just thinking and i do think that just thinking of ideas and keeping your brain thinking of jujitsu i try to keep telling myself that that's the same as training being as though i can't train right now mm. um so it just like maybe getting some like light repping sessions on yeah. a dummy is basically what i'm going to do probably for like another two three weeks maybe Hopefully yep. after that, it would be a little bit easier to train without having to worry too much, you know, but that's the plan. Okay, cool, man. It's, um, you, and obviously if, uh, if people are keen, they can hit you up for private lessons, right? Uh, you're yeah, doing no, that sort of stuff. People want to do, yeah, I'm yeah. doing private lessons and, uh, like I have, once I have the mat set up, it'll be easier for me to do like, uh, uh, private, like Skype lessons. Mm -hmm. if that's like easier for people. And, uh, well, anyone listening, you know, I would 100% yeah. recommend they they hit you up and um and try to do Thank that because yeah. it's it's a if they care about their jujitsu, it's a it's a it would be a good investment in um in their time and with their money. I appreciate All right. that. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I'm gonna let you go. You go and enjoy no, the rest thanks. of your day. It looks like a lovely rainy day over there in Brooklyn today. Yeah, no, it's raining for like the past three weeks. <laughs> lovely, just suits the mood, yeah. doesn't it? Over yeah, here, it's it beautiful. It's beautiful autumn at the moment. It's actually been fucking awesome oh. over here. Hey, you're gonna have oh, to come to great. maybe. You know what we need to do? Once all yeah. this shit clears out, we'll bring you to Australia. Yeah, no, I'd love that. That'd yeah, be awesome. I'd appreciate that. Yeah, come out. That'd maybe really um, I'm gonna be bringing out Jay Rao, the dragon. Assuming they allow dragons on planes, hopefully later in the year. Yeah. Maybe we could even yeah. organize like some crazy thing where you both come out and we could do a huge, yeah, uh, no. huge thing. I'm always down. And, yeah. Uh, if Jay goes too, it makes it even better because then yeah. you know yeah. it's easier that way. <laughs> All right, man. Well, we'll we'll sort some stuff out. But um, thanks again for today. Thanks. You're a fucking legend, and we'll um we'll no, talk thank soon. Thank you, man. Yeah. No. Awesome. Thank you. All right, buddy. Catch ya.